Chapter 6 Sadness In his condition in paradise, man did not know sadness. It appeared after Adam's transgression and is relative to the fallen state in which man finds himself. It does not constitute an attitude belonging to man's original and fundamental nature. However, even though sadness is a consequence of Adam's sin, it is not ipso facto an evil passion and is no longer external to human nature. In fact, two different forms of sadness must be distinguished. The first belongs to what the fathers call the natural and irreproachable passions. That is to say, those that were integrated into man's nature following the ancestral sin, and though bearing witness to man's fall relative to his original perfect state, are not bad. The form of sadness that makes up these natural passions is not only irreproachable, but can and must serve as the foundation of a virtue, the godly grief that allows man to be distressed about his fallen state, to weep over his sins, to be saddened by the loss of his original perfection, to suffer from being distanced from God, a sadness that constitutes the state of penitence, of spiritual mourning, of compunction, and finds its fulfillment in the gift of tears. This virtue is indispensable to fallen man for finding the way to the kingdom again and returning to Christ, in Christ, to the Edenic state. Thus, St. Maximus writes, In fervent men, even the passions become good when we take them on in order to acquire heavenly things. The same applies when we turn sadness into repentance that rids us of the evil that is present. The second form of sadness, which is the object of the present study, is on the contrary a passion, a sickness of the soul, constituted by the misuse of the aforementioned sadness. Instead of using sadness to weep over his sins and to grieve himself over his estrangement from God and the loss of spiritual goods, man uses it on the contrary to bemoan the loss of sensual things. He is distressed as not having satisfied some desire and not obtaining some expected pleasure, or furthermore, at having had some troubles in his relationships with his fellow men. He thus uses sadness contranaturally and abnormally. St. John Chrysostom therefore observes, quote, By no means is it adversity, but sin alone that must provoke sadness. But man perverts this order and mixes up the sentence. So he multiplies his sins and does not imagine any sorrow among them. And as soon as he experiences any inconvenience, he becomes discouraged. Sadness thus becomes a passion no less serious and unfortunate than anger and sensual delight, bringing about the same results as soon as we make use of it beyond the limits of what is reasonable and prudent. Man displays a twofold pathological behavior in this passion in that, on the one hand, he does not continually bemoan as he ought what in truth constitutes a grievous situation, his state of fallenness, sin, and illness, and on the other hand, he is saddened on account of objects, states, situations, etc., that are not really worthy of grief. The faculty of affliction at man's disposal does not only aid in distancing oneself from one's sinful state, as God had wished for man to do in bestowing this gift on him, but on the contrary is used inopportunely, absurdly, and in an insane manner in relation to his natural end goal, 
so as to display his attachment to this world, entering paradoxically into the service of sin. Sadness appears as a state of the soul consisting beyond what this word itself indicates, and discouragement, asthenia, mental sluggishness and pain, despondency, despair, distress, oppression, depression, and most often accompanied by anxiety and even anguish. This state can have multiple causes, but is always formed by a pathological reaction of the soul's irascible or desirative faculties, and is then essentially linked to anger and or lust. Evagris explains, sadness tends to come up at times because of the deprivation of one's desires. On other occasion, it accompanies anger. However, it can also be produced in the soul directly by demonic activity, or even be born in the soul without any apparent motive. We shall examine these different etiologies in detail. The most frequent cause of sadness is the frustration of one or more desires. Sadness is constituted by the non-satisfaction of a carnal desire, remarks Evagrius. St. John Cashin likewise notes that sadness arises when we find we have failed to attain what we have been hoping for, and that one of its main types follows on a thwarted desire, inasmuch as a desire is linked to every passion. Every passion is constantly capable, therefore, of producing sadness. Evagrius says further, He who loves the world will be grieved time and time again. Since pleasure is linked to desire, one can say again with the same author that sadness is the frustration of pleasure either present or expected. St. Maximus and St. Thalassius give the same definition. We have seen that St. Maximus, the confessor, emphasizes that sensual pleasure is inevitably followed by pain, which is most often mental rather than physical. In other words, taking the form of sadness. This is why St. Maximus says that sadness is the end of sensual pleasure. Inasmuch as it is the result of the frustration of some carnal desire in the broad sense of this term, and of the accompanying pleasure, sadness reveals an attachment of the person affected by it to sensible goods and the values of this world. This is why Evagrius stretches that it stresses that it is linked to all the passions insofar as they imply lust and says, if we continue to cherish some affection for anything in this world, it is impossible to repel this enemy. St. Dorotheus of Gaza speaks similarly. He who does not despise every material thing cannot free himself from sadness. And St. John Climacus remarks, The man who has come to hate the world has escaped sorrow, but he who has an attachment to anything visible is not yet delivered from grief. For how is it possible not to be sad at the loss of something we love? The same saint notes again, if anyone thinks he is without attachment to some object, but is grieved at its loss, then he is completely deceiving himself. One also sees sadness, often provoked by the loss of a sensible good or by some injury or other suffered on the same level. Man's passionate attachment to his earthly life and everything contained in it that satisfies his passions 
can likewise bring forth sadness in the experience of thought of everything capable of endangering that life. Illness, all the evils to which he finds himself exposed, and death. Sadness can also be aroused by the desire for some material or moral good possessed by others. It can also have as its cause a disappointment in the quest for honors, and so appears necessarily linked with vainglory. Let us note again that sadness does not have to be provoked by the thwarting of a particular desire, fixed on a well-determined object. It can be connected to a general dissatisfaction, a feeling of universal frustration focusing on the whole of existence and revealing that the person's deepest and most basic desires, whose true significance this person is not necessarily aware of, are unfulfilled. The second cause of sadness is anger. Evagrius teaches, sadness results from thoughts of anger. Indeed, anger is a desire for vengeance, and unsatisfied vengeance produces sadness. St. Maximus speaks similarly. Grief and grudges go together. When at the sight of a brother a man's mind mirrors grief, it is clear that he bears him a grudge. St. John Cashin likewise affirms, without going into detail, melancholy often follows on the preceding vice, anger. He observes further that a kind of sadness is begotten once anger has ceased. Sadness can also be related to feelings other than that of rancor. In particular, it is often a result of the feeling that one's anger was excessive or disproportionate to what motivated it, or, on the other hand, that it was lacking and that it did not portray with enough emotion what one suffered or did not provoke the expected reaction in those to whom the anger was directed. Likewise, sadness can be produced by an offense or by what the subjects think to be as such. St. John Damascene observes, When we are hurt or think ourselves to be hurt, we are in sorrow. In almost every case, this passion reveals an attachment to oneself and is linked with vanity and pride, as is the case with anger, which it follows. Sadness evinces a reaction of the self, frustrated in its desire for self-affirmation. In this, the second etiology agrees with the first, and reduced to less than what it thought of itself. Moreover, the rancor that is often accompanied by sadness is the resentment of injured pride, and anger, the source of the same passion, often expresses a wish for a reaffirmation, elevation, and reassurance of the self vis-a-vis -vis itself and other people. Sadness then turns out to be the expression of a feeling of failure or impotence experienced by the self in this attempt at self-rehabilitation. At times, however, sadness appears unmotivated. St. John Cashin notes, quote, It happens that we are filled with a sudden an uncaused anguish, we sense ourselves overcome by a sadness which has no motive whatsoever. Elsewhere, the same saint says that there are only two kinds of sadness. The first is comprised of all the forms we have already studied, while the other comes from unreasonable mental anguish or from despair. Thus, the boundary between this kind of sadness and the passion of Echidia, which we examine in the next chapter, become rather imprecise. One must be aware that the demons 
play an important role in the birth, development, and perpetuation of all forms of sadness, and in particular of the form that we have just presented. And this kind, if this kind is called unmotivated, it is so inasmuch as it is not directly related to any precise activity of the person it affects, and is not, like the preceding kinds of sadness, the fruit of some unsatisfied desire, or that of a movement of anger, but this does not mean that it has no cause at all. The fathers indeed recognize that sadness is most often produced by diabolical intervention. St. John Cassianos thus remarks that sometimes melancholy arises for no apparent cause which might provoke us to such depths, but we are cast down by the enemy's insinuations. St. John Chrysostom, analyzing the state of his friend Stagirius, who was suffering from profound sadness, likewise writes repeatedly about the role of demonic influence. In particular, he writes him the following, quote, The demon envelops your mind with these black sorrows as with profound darkness, and does his best to rob you of the thoughts able to reassure you against yourself. But as he finds your soul alone, he overwhelms it with blows and scourges. Moreover, the, the eruption of a feeling of sadness in the soul is one of the most immediate effects of diabolical activity. St. Barsanufius notes, The thoughts that come from the demons are first of all disturbed and mixed with sadness. And inversely, one can say that every state of sadness in the soul is under any circumstance a sign of demonic activity. The great elder says again, everything that is done with unrest and sadness comes from the demons. Although external events may be able to arouse and motivate sadness, it must be emphasized that in truth, sadness does not have its source in them. They are the occasion, not the cause, which lies solely in man's very soul, more precisely in the attitude he adopts with regard to external events as well as regards himself. He is then responsible for the sadness affecting him, and the external circumstances, and even the woes he may have suffered cannot serve fundamentally as excuses for him. St. John Chrysostom writes, quote, Our joys and our sorrows come less from the nature itself of things than from our own predispositions. If these latter are wisely regulated, we will always have a great depth of contentment in our heart. The bodily illnesses have as their cause some interior disorder rather than bad weather or any other external influence. But all the more so is it the case with the illnesses of the soul. For if those of the body are a privilege of our nature, the others depend only upon our will. End of quote. Even when it is the demons who arouse or maintain states of sadness, they can only do so because they find favorable ground in the soul and benefit from a certain participation more or less conscious of man's will. Thus St. John Chrysostom says to Stagrius, The demon is not the author of this somber grief in you, but this grief itself comes to the demon's aid, and it suggests to you these bad thoughts. Sadness often pre-exists the direct intervention of the devil, and he merely profits from the situation to develop the passion. The passion of sadness can take 
the extreme form of despair. One of its particularly serious manifestations. St. John Chrysostom observes, Too great a sadness is dangerous, so dangerous that it can even cause death. This is why St. Paul said, Lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 2 Corinthians 2.7 The devil plays a particularly important role in the birth of despair and can trigger catastrophic consequences in the soul by means of the state. St. John Chrysostom says, quote, The devil has no other weapon in hand more fearsome than despair. Thus we give him less pleasure by sinning than by despairing. <clears throat> in this state, man fundamentally despairs of God and hence cuts himself off from him. It follows that he leaves himself wide open to the devil's activity, delivering himself bound hand and foot to his power and dooming himself to spiritual death. Worldly grief produces death, teaches St. Paul. Under the influence of despair, and sometimes even of simple sadness, man is often led to devote himself to dissolute passions, thinking that they will be able to cure his state, whereas they would only spare him the awareness of it. Thus the Apostle notes, they have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. St. Gregory the Great notes in turn that sadness results from the wandering of the mind toward for forbidden things. A source of spiritual death, despair, can also cause man to give his body over to death, pushing him to expect nothing more from life. It embeds in his soul thoughts of suicide and brings him to actualize them. Footnote, one sees this in Stagrius, St. John Chrysostom's dear friend, who is plagued by suicidal thoughts and is on the verge of acting on them. See Consolations to Stagrius, chapters 1 and 2. To continue, <clears throat> St. John Chrysostom, so as to explain this fact, maintains the possibility of diabolical involvement, but affirms that in every case such involvement is not solely to blame, wishing here again to insist on man's own responsibility. He writes to Stagrius, quote, These deadly thoughts do not come from the devil alone, and your sadness is of great consequence in this. Yea, this dark sadness provokes them more than the wicked spirit, and perhaps it is the only cause of them, Indeed, it is certain that some people, apart from this diabolical obsession, experience this madness of suicide following intense sufferings. He further writes, A deep sadness, even without the devil's help, gives birth to the greatest evils. It is under the pressure of dark despondency that the unhappy weave a snare, run themselves through with a dagger, throw themselves into the water and have recourse to every other kind of violent death. These very men in whom the activity of the evil spirit is revealed must blame their loss less on it than on the tyranny and excess of their sorrows. For all these reasons, the fathers consider sadness as a sickness of the soul, having great importance and powerful effects. All the more so is it thus with despair. St. John Chrysostom says, Great is the influence of sadness. It is a sickness of the mind that demands great strength in order to resist it courageously and to reject whatever evil it has. The fathers often present this passion as a form of madness, 
a state most clearly made manifest in despair. St. Synclitiki, evoking the sadness that comes from the enemy, thus says that it is full of madness. And St. John Cassian observes the following, If sadness can once again gain the mastery over our hearts through individual occurrences, it weakens and depresses our mind. When all sound discernment is lost and the heart is worried and perturbed, it makes us all but distracted and dazed and breaks us with overwhelming gloom. The pathological effects of sadness are formidable and substantial. Sorrow has destroyed many, notes the preacher. John Chrysostom does not hesitate to say, a deep sadness is more harmful to us than all the attacks of evil spirits. Sadness is not only an obstacle to all goods, but also introduces a whole host of evils into the soul. St. Nilsorsky even considers it to be the root of every evil, beside the fact that it is almost inevitably gives birth to despair and its grave consequences if one allows it to develop. This passion produces from the start such impassioned attitudes as acrimony, spitefulness, resentment, bitterness, rancor, which, as we have seen, gives birth to sadness, but is also increased by it, and impatience. For this reason, sadness greatly disturbs man's relationship with his neighbor. Let us note further that sadness, like all the other passions, fills the soul with shadow. First of all, covering up the noose, the mind, with darkness, blinding the intellect, and considerably reducing its faculty of discernment. One of its specific effects is the weighing down of the soul. Moreover, it produces in the whole of man a state of asthenia and half-heartedness, making him cowardly and paralyzing his activity. This last effect shows itself to be particularly serious on the spiritual level, where it deprives man of all his dynamism, thwarts his ascetical efforts, and destroys prayer particularly when sadness arises as the consequence of a sin. Chapter 7. Acedia, Negligence, Sloth Acedia is such a close neighbor of sadness that the ascetical tradition inspired by St. Gregory the Great in the West reunites these two passions into a single one. This Eastern ascetical tradition, however, distinguishes them. The Greek word appears in Latin as acedio, with French and English equivalents. It is difficult to translate this word simultaneously in a simple and all-encompassing manner. The words sloth, or boredom, and negligence often are used to render it, express only part of the complex reality signified by the term. Indeed, acedia corresponds to a certain state of sloth and boredom, but also of disgust, aversion, Lassitude, dejection, discouragement, languor, torpor, nonchalance, drowsiness, somnolence, and sluggishness of the body as well as the soul. Acedia can even drive a man to sleep without his really being tired. In Acedia, there is a vague and general dissatisfaction. When he is under the sway of this passion, man no longer desires anything, finding everything bland and insipid and expecting nothing at all. Acedia makes man instable in both soul and body. His faculties become fickle. His mind flits from one object to another, unable to stay focused. 
especially when he is alone. He can no longer bear to remain where he is. The passion urges him to leave, to move, to go to one or several other places. Sometimes he begins to wander and roam, and generally he seeks contact with others at any price. These contacts are not objectively necessary, but driven by his passion, man feels that he needs them and finds himself good pretexts so as to justify them. He thus establishes and maintains often futile relationships, nourished with idle chatter in which he generally manifests an idle curiosity. It can happen that acedia fills the person subject to it with an intense and permanent aversion for his place of residence, giving him grounds for being dissatisfied with his abode and bringing him to believe that he would be better off elsewhere. This passion drives him along to desire other sites where he can more easily procure life's necessities. Acedia can also bring a man to shun his activities, in particular his work, and makes him dissatisfied with it. The passion leads him then to look for other kinds of work while making him believe that these will be more interesting and will make him happier. All states linked to acedia neglect are accompanied by worry or anxiety, which in addition to disgust are a fundamental trait of this passion. The demon of acedia especially attacks those who have dedicated themselves to the spiritual life. He seeks to turn them away from the paths of the spirit, to prevent in manifold ways the activities that such a life entails, and in particular to harm the regularity and constancy of the ascetical discipline or program it requires, and to break the silence and stillness favoring this life. St. John Climacus thus presents acedia as a paralysis of soul, an innervation of the mind, and neglect of asceticism. It renders the spiritual man, quote, desolatory and lazy at any task to be done within the walls of his cell. It does not let him sit in his cell and apply himself to his duty of reading. Under the passion's influence, man's mind becomes idle and empty of any spiritual work. He becomes indifferent to God's whole work, ceases to desire future goods and even going so far as to belittle spiritual goods. All the fathers see in Asidia one of the primary obstacles to prayer. St. John Climacus defines it as, quote, being languid in psalms, weak in prayer. St. Simeon, the new theologian, notes, quote, above all, the demon of Asidia usually attacks those who are advanced in prayer or who are assiduous in it. Many remark that it engenders torpor in the soul and body, especially at the hour of prayer, urging man to slumber, Quote, when there is no psalmody, then despondency, that is, acedia, does not make its appearance. And as soon as the appointed service is finished, the eyes open, St. John Climacus points out. He notes further, but when the hour of prayer has come, again the body is weighed down. He begins to pray, but he grows sleepy, and the psalm verses are snatched from his mouth with untimely yawns. If it is true that acedia most often especially affects those who strive to submit themselves to a regular spiritual program and discipline, reducing for this reason their exterior activities and movements to what is strictly necessary and seeking the greatest silence, stillness, and solitude. If it is true that 
the more man orders himself spiritually and isolates himself in order to dedicate himself in silence to the prayer that unites him to God, the more he is attacked by this passion, particularly feared by hermits, the anchorites. Nonetheless, this passion does not leave in peace those living outside any discipline or even any spiritual activity. It challenges them under other guises, as St. Isaac the Syrian comments, quote, to those who lead their lives in the works of the body, another acedia comes, which is visible in the eyes of all. This acedia takes the form of an oft-times vague and muddled feeling of dissatisfaction, disgust, boredom, lassitude, and this vis-a-vis -vis themselves, existence, those around them, the place where they live, their work, or even any activity whatsoever. Such individuals are further affected by groundless restlessness, a generalized anxiety, or a continual or episodic anguish. Generally speaking, they are correlatively seized by a state of torpor, mental and physical numbness, general and constant fatigue experienced without any reason and permanent or periodic drowsiness of soul and body, often at the same time and in order somehow to ward off these dreadful states, Ocedia drives such people to, to various unnecessary activities and movements, to useless visits and to everything through which they think they can escape anguish and boredom. It impels them to flee solitude and compensate for the dissatisfaction that they feel. Although they wish and often believe that thus they will be satisfied and come to themselves, in reality, they do nothing but turn away from themselves and their spiritual ought or duty, from their true nature and destiny, and by this, from any full and complete satisfaction. With those who lead an ascetical life, the attacks of this demon, the manifestations of this passion, attain their greatest intensity around noon. St. John Cushion writes, quote, It particularly troubles solitaries at the sixth hour, like a malaria which recurs at regular intervals. As the infection brings burning fevers on the suffering soul at predictable set times. Many elders consider this to be the noonday devil, which is mentioned in the 19th Psalm. End of quote. Among these elders, one must cite Evagrius, who affirms, quote, the demon of Asidia, also called the noonday demon, presses his attack upon the monk about the fourth hour and besieges the soul until about the eighth hour. What fundamentally distinguishes Asidia from sadness is that the former has no precise motivation and that there is an, an unreasonable mental turmoil, as St. John Cassiano says. But having no motivation does not mean that it has no cause. The diabolical etiology is dominant, as the preceding remarks show. However, the passion presupposes favorable soil in order to be able to act. The fact of being attached to pleasure being in the grip of sadness constitutes one of Ocedia's forms, the importance of which St. Thalassios underscores, quote, Ocedia is negligence of soul, and negligent soul is one that is sick with the love of pleasure. He notes further, St. Macarius on his part blames a lack of faith, while St. Isaac remarks that, quote, Ocedia comes from the distraction of the noose in the spiritual man.
Seneca Homily 33. To continue, the preceding description of the turmoil characterizing Ossidia allows us to understand why the fathers consider it an illness of the soul. Its numerous pathological effects only confirm this way of viewing the passion. Standing first among these effects is a generalized darkening of the soul. Ossidia makes the noose dark, blinding it and covering the entire soul with gloom. As a result, the soul becomes incapable of apprehending essential truths. Quote, for truly the soul sleeps, unaware of any contemplative contemplation of virtue or spiritual insight, once it is damaged by the onset of this disease, observes St. John Cashin. The most serious consequence is that through this passion, man does turn away and kept distance from the knowledge of God. The fathers note further that acedia, which continues, constitutes a paralysis of soul and carelessness of the mind, engenders an emptiness within the soul, leads man to a generalized negligence and makes him cowardly. When uniting to sadness, it increases it and thus can easily lead to despair. Furthermore, thoughts of blasphemy as well as mad thoughts against the Creator can come forth from Asidia. Some of its other well-known consequences include the destruction of compunction and the onset of irritability. Additionally, says St. Isaac, the spirit of distraction comes from it, which is the source of a thousand temptations. Contrary to the other main passions, Asidia does not give birth to any particular passion on account of its producing almost all of them. No other demon follows close upon the heels of this one, affirms Evagrius, who explains elsewhere, quote, the thought of Asidia is not followed by any other thought, first because it lingers, and then because it contains within itself almost all thoughts, end quote. St. Maximus likewise says that Asidia Quote, excites practically all the passions together. In a more general way, St. Barthesanufius teaches that, quote, the spirit of Asidia engenders every evil. St. John Climacus consequently notes that, quote, for the monk, despondency is a general death. And St. Simeon the New Theologian as well concludes that, if, that it is the death of the soul and of the mind. He adds, if God were to allow this demon to use all his might against us, undoubtedly no ascetic would be saved. In the face of the extent of these effects, the Holy Fathers also affirm that Asidia is the most burdensome and most overwhelming of all the passions. Quote, the gravest of the eight principal passions. From St. John Climacus, Ladder of Divine Ascent 13. And that there is no passion worse than it. St. Isaac says that it causes the soul to taste hell. The pathology of Asidia cannot be considered as constituted by the perverted use of a particular fa faculty, as is the case in the previously studied passions. St. Maximus observes that this passion entails all of them. Quote, the remaining passions lay hold of either the irascible part of the soul or the desirative only, or also of the rational but Ossidia seizes all the powers of the soul. Yet it is not constituted by their contra-natural use, since it has no positive foundation in its nature. Evagrius notes that it is, 
in conformity with nature, not to have it at all. In a sense, Asidi is, on the one hand, the numbing and deactivization of all the faculties contributing to man's spiritual life, and on the other hand, their distraction. St. Thalassios expresses this dual aspect well when he defines this passion as the negligence of the soul. To a certain degree, one can consider it to be constituted by the absence of spiritual zeal given by the Spirit, both to the first man as well as to the man renewed in Christ, in order to accomplish with fervor their spiritual task. Chapter 8. Anger. The passion of anger proceeds from the soul's irascible power and includes all the pathological manifestations of aggression. As we have seen, God bestowed the irascible power on man at his creation and is part of his very nature. Its function, according to the Creator's plan, was supposed to be to allow man to fight against the temptations and the tempter and to avoid sin and evil. Thus was the definition of its normal use and natural end goal in the beginning. As we have shown, however, man turned this away from its end goal through sin and diverted his anger against his neighbor, thus making a contra-natural use of it. It is this contra-natural use of the irascible power that constitutes the passion of anger in all its forms, turning it into a sickness of the soul. This point has been sufficiently developed in the first part of our study so that we shall not return to it here. Anger appears as a passion any time it takes one's neighbor as its object. Consequently, no grounds of any kind can justify it. It is fitting to become angry against the evil one, but not against the man who falls victim to him. For as the apostle says, quote, We are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 one must fight against sin and not against him who commits it. Quote, hate the illness, but not him who is ill, recommends St. Synclitiki. The exteriorized and violent displays which we normally classify under the term anger and which we use episodic and in particular affect certain people with a so-called quick temper is not the only component in the ascetic's tradition understanding of anger. The fathers think of it as a, as a passion just as developed as the others, and likewise use this term to cover all forms of aggression, exteriorized or internalized, open or hidden, overt or subtle, that man is capable of and generally taking one's neighbor as their object. Thus, besides what we usually call anger, constituting its most exterior, visible, and violent manifestation, the acute form of the passion in which anger arises and starts to move, the fathers distinguish resentment, which is a sustained anger, continuing in a more interiorized and hidden form and founded on the remembrance of some suffered offense, humiliation, or injustice, also rancor, hatred, and also all forms of grudges, hostility, animosity, enmity, in short of wickedness bad moods, acrimony, forms developed to a greater or lesser degree of irritation, 
and manifestations of an impatience are all part of this passion. Additionally, indignation, mockery, scoffing, and irony with regard to people are linked to it. One can further mention feelings, even barely developed ones, of ill will, ranging from the coarsest kind, which translates to spitefulness and the overt will to cause harm, to the most subtle, consisting on the one hand in rejoicing even for the briefest moment in some misfortune or disappointment affecting one's neighbor, and on the other in not being saddened at the woes befalling him, or even at not rejoicing in his happiness. The opposite of these oftentimes very fine, interior, and unnoticed feelings, the extreme forms of violence, such as various rivalries, battles, acts of aggression, fights, and even crimes or wars, can likewise spring from the passion of anger as it is broadly understood within the ascetical tradition. One sees then that the passion includes a vast gamut of human states and reactions, and one understands that it can affect fallen man almost permanently, just like the other passions. The fathers note that man experiences in every form of anger a certain pleasure that causes him to become attached to it. St. John Chrysostom remarks, quote, from his On the Priesthood, he cares little about the evil that the soul does to itself. It resolves to do it and makes of it a kind of pleasure that must be satisfied at all costs. Indeed, this blaze of the heart is not without a certain pleasure, tyrannizing the soul more harshly than any other pleasure. End of quote. St. John Climacus mentions regarding the remembrance of wrongs and rancor, quote, Remembrance of wrongs is a nail stuck in the soul, a pleasureless feeling cherished in the sweetness of bitterness. But here there is a secondary relation to pleasure that allows us to understand how pleasure can maintain anger, and in particular rancor, not how it conditions its appearance. The source of the various manifestations of this passion can be grasped through the preliminary and more fundamental link between pleasure and anger. Evagrius, taking up the words of another Holy Father, states, quote, I know that anger constantly fights for pleasures, end of quote. St. Maximus and St. Dorotheus likewise see a fundamental cause of anger in the love of pleasure. Anger is born in men not only when he is saddened at not being able to obtain the pleasure he seeks, but also and principally when he feels, fears, or finds himself deprived of a pleasure in which he once delighted, and when love of, of self finds itself thus murdered by suffering. Anger then turns against the person who is or seems to be the cause of this frustration, or who at least threatens to be so, or appears to do so. This is why Evagrius defines anger as a, quote, a boiling and stirring up of wrath against one who has given injury or is thought to have done so. Sensual pleasure correlates to sensual desire. So the desire for sensible goods and the attachment to them are also fundamental causes of anger. This fact allows us to understand the other monastic affirmation cited by Evagrius, quote, I have this reason for putting aside pleasure, that I might cut off the pretext for growing angry. Evagrius himself says elsewhere, Armed as you are against anger, do not submit to any powerful desire, 
for it is these which provide fuel for anger. St. Isaac the Syrian writes in the same vein, If we attach ourselves to sensible things, these things that arouse aggression against nature, we change natural gentleness into savagery. Here we see an echo of St. James's teaching, quote, What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? James 4.1 Man falls into the passion of anger through love of material goods and the pleasure they procure because he prefers them to spiritual goods and delights. St. Maximus says this clearly, quote, We have preferred profane and material things to the commandment of love, and because we have attached ourselves to them, we fight against men, whereas we ought to prefer the love of all men to all visible things and even to our own body. He explains further, quote, Because we are taken by love of material things and the attack, attraction of pleasure, and because we prefer all this to the commandment, we are unable to love those who hate us. Rather, it happens that we oppose those who love us because of these very things. End of quote. As we have seen, the love for sensible things and their correlative pleasures manifests itself in the passions in various ways. According to a classic ascetical understanding, there are three great categories of passions or three main types of attachment to sensible reality which can constitute a pretext for anger in man if he finds himself deprived of the pleasure they procure or threatened by their loss or hindered in their attainment. They are the attachment to food, the passion of gluttony, the attachment to money, riches, and more generally speaking, material objects, the passions of love of money and greed, and the attachment to oneself. There's the passions of vainglory, pride, narcissism. However, these are only the most important, most frequent, and widespread causes of the passion. Anger can have a great number of causes, such that it is difficult to delimit them in a simple manner. St. John Climacus points this out, using once again the language of the spiritual physician. Quote from Ladder 8, as bodily fever is one thing, but the causes of this are not one but many, so also the boiling up of anger and the movement of other passions have many and various causes. That is why it is impossible to prescribe one identical rule for them. Instead, I would rather suggest that each of those who are sick should most carefully seek out his own particular cure. The first step in the cure should be a diagnosis of the cause of each disease. For when this is discovered, the patients will obtain the right cure from God's care and from their spiritual physicians. End of quote. To continue, besides the previously mentioned passions, one must also include among the primary causes of anger the passion of lust, as well as an excess of bodily rest. This last source and etiology can be understood in like manner as the one constituted by intemperance. By taking too much rest, as well as feeding the body over abundantly, one furnishes the body with a wealth of energy which can easily be used to strengthen the soul's aggressive power. Simultaneously, one relaxes the attention of his mind, his, his noose, and the tension of the will, which control and direct the soul. 
but even this is just one reason among many. Judging from all the sources of anger that we have presented, it is certain that vainglory and pride are the most fundamental causes. St. Mark the ascetic writes on the subject of hatred, quote, this sickness affects those who pursue the first place among honors. More generally on the topic of anger, he writes, pride chiefly consolidates and strengthens it. Man is moved to different forms of anger when he is injured in his love of self and when he feels humiliated, offended, and discredited, especially regarding the conceited image he has of himself and which he expects others to have of him in return, with the result that what appears to be the external cause and real motivator of anger is in fact only the revealer or catalyst of an anger proceeding directly from the subject himself and from his pride. St. Basil, for example, he notes the following, quote, It is not words that hurt us, but rather our pride, which rebels against us and the high opinion we have of ourselves, end of quote. St. Basil's against anger. The contrary is proven by the fact that the humble man remains peaceful and gentle even when violently attacked. Through anger, rancor, and the desire for revenge, Man seeks to restore both in his own eyes and in those of him who has offended him, his own image to which he is attached and which he feels he has been disparaged. These latter considerations in no way disagree with what we have said previously with regard to the importance of the role pleasure plays in anger. As we shall see in the following, man takes from vainglory and pride a certain pleasure that finds itself threatened, diminished, and even eliminated by offenses and humiliations of every sort. Here again, anger appears as a rebellious reaction faced with the loss of a pleasure, but even more often it is a defensive reaction aimed at preserving a threatened pleasure or restoring a lost one. As with all the other passions, the fathers consider anger in all its forms to be a sickness of the soul. Quote, it is a sickness that disgusts our nature as much as a bodily illness does, says St. John Chrysostom. By reason of the disturbances constituted by anger, the passion is considered above all as a form of madness. St. John Chrysostom states, There is no difference between anger and madness. He says further, The angry man absolutely resembles a madman. For his part, St. Basil notes that Anger is a momentary madness. In its acute and violent manifestations, especially when taking the form of a fury, anger obviously merits being considered as a kind of madness. St. John Climacus does not hesitate to characterize it as a spiritual epilepsy. St. Gregory the Great, in presenting a more precise table of the paroxysmal manifestations of this passion, clearly shows that these symptoms present one to equate anger with a form of madness. Quote, Pricked by the thorn of anger, the heart throbs, the body trembles, the tongue stutters, the blood rushes to the face, the eyes sparkle, man becomes unrecognizable to those who know him. The mouth brings forth sounds, but the intellect no longer knows what it is saying. So how does a man who is no longer aware of what he is saying differ from a madman in agony? It also often happens that anger descends even to the fists. 
and then it rises vehemently in accordance with the degree of his insanity. The mind no longer has any control, for it has become the plaything of an alien power, and if his rage acts outwardly upon his members by making them swing blows, it is because inwardly this rage captivates the soul, which ought to be its master." End of quote. The fathers often similarly show how the man seized by these violent forms of anger resembles someone possessed. And here it is fitting, moreover, to recall the direct link they see between certain agitated forms of madness and demonic possession. If anger is related to and even identified with certain forms of madness and possession, this is because one finds in both cases a large number of similar symptoms. Let us examine in detail this pathology that is revealed especially clearly in the most violent forms of anger, but which is also found to various degrees in other manifestations of this passion. On the bodily level, anger calls forth a characteristic agitation easily visible from the exterior. St. John Chrysostom and above all St. Basil the Great give us a typical description of this reaction comparable to the one presented by St. Gregory the Great, which we have quoted at length above. Within the body, anger translates into various physiological disorders. It, its suppressed and chronic forms likewise imply such afflictions. All these disorders that upset the usual functioning of the body damage its health. Quote, anger corrupts the body. End of quote. And I have known several people whom anger has made ill. St. John Climacus, for his part, notes the effects this passion can have on the digestive system, giving rise either to anorexia or bulimia. But above all, it is in the soul that anger produces disorders that allow it to be considered as a grave illness of the soul and as a form of madness. Quote, the insensitive power usually troubles and confuses the soul more than any other passion, notes St. Diodocus of Photiki from Philokalia, and following him, St. John Climacus. St. Gregory the Great, on his part, writes that anger perturbs the soul and, so to speak, renders it asunder and hacks it up. It casts confusion into it. St. Mark the ascetic remarks, quote, anger lays waste the entire soul and throws it into confusion. St. John Chrysostom speaks in like terms, it ruins the soul, it upsets its normal state from top to bottom. He also states that anger deforms the soul, since it mars, we see, not the body only, but the very health likewise of the soul is corrupted by it. The troubles engendered within the soul by the passion of anger are manifold. First of all, anger disrupts the use of reason to the point of seeming to exclude it. Quote, aggression tyrannically destroys the exercise of reason and causes thought to depart from the law of nature, writes St. Maximus. St. Basil, on his part, notes, this passion banishes reason. It forbids man to use his reasoning. With his reason being entombed in drunkenness and gloom, man becomes incapable of properly judging things. Thus St. John Cassian writes, as long as anger lurks in our hearts and blinds our noose, our mind's eye with its evil darkness, we are incapable of acquiring the discretion to decide rightly or even to perceive the true spiritual light, for my eye is troubled with wrath. 
we shall have no hope of acquiring natural deliberation, for a passionate man acts without deliberation. St. John Chrysostom observes in the same vein, Nothing troubles the clarity of the intellect, of the mind, the noose. Nothing offends the penetration of the spirit like anger. Since man then sees things as his anger shows them to him, his reason is completely given over to the service of his passion. Thus his entire knowledge of reality is disturbed, even if from an outside point of view his cognitive faculties seem to function properly, and he seems to remain capable of formally valid reasoning. The man plagued by aggression ceases to perceive things in their reality, instead he sees them as they are not, since his passion produces within him a deluded kind of knowledge, and in correlation with this incoherent knowledge it modifies his manner of behaving in the face of reality. St. John the Golden Mouth says, quote, Truly, anger is no less mad than delusion. Behold, how this demon casts his victims into delirium, utterly depriving them of reason and convincing them of what is contrary to what their eyes behold. They see nothing, they do nothing with reason. One could say they no longer have sense or judgment. Anger subjugates them. End of quote. Comparing anger to drunkenness, which, as the same saint has said, is nothing other than the wandering of the mind away from its natural paths, the deviation of reasoning and the loss of conscience. He likewise writes, quote, In what way are those who grow angry and drunk with fury in a less serious situation than those who are drunk with wine? Indeed, they prove to such an outrageous degree that they too fly into a rage against everyone without controlling their words, and no longer able to distinguish persons. Just as the mad and the frenzied cast themselves down from precipice, perceived, perceiving them, so too is it thus with those who are angry and assailed by fury. End of quote. Likewise, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil, notes that under the influence of anger, man ceases to respect the most fundamental values in himself and in others, going so far as to ignore his neighbors and neglect their most basic interests. The delirium engendered by anger has the additional effect of modifying the proportion of the things man perceives. Events are no longer perceived nor lived according to their true dimensions, but some are unjustly and excessively enlarged while others are correspondingly hidden or are held to be less important. Another essential pathological trait that allows us to liken anger to a form of madness or a state of possession is the alienation resulting from it. The victim of this passion no longer has control of himself. He no longer seems to act under the direction of his mind and under the impulse of his own will, but rather is governed in thought and deed by an exterior force. He appears utterly unable to gain mastery over this power, that tyrannizes both his soul and body. Man literally becomes the plaything of his passion. However, such an alienation is not only linked to anger's violent forms, one can equally observe it in manifestations of rancor or smoldering hatred in which all man's faculties are focused on the object against which these forms of the passion exert themselves and in which the subject is, as it were, constrained continually to remember the offense suffered and constantly to define or redefine the means for avenging himself. 
Even in situations where his anger is merely a simple irritation, man appears in his behavior to be governed by an exterior force that escapes him in part. Something he recognizes, for example, when he says he is in a bad mood. In conclusion, the final essential pathological symptom of anger is the psychomotor agitation that characterizes the passion in various degrees, and here again connects it with manifestations of madness and states of demonic possession. The victim's behavior becomes confused and disordered. He does the strangest things, acts he would repudiate in his normal state. St. Basil observes, those who allow themselves to be caught unawares by anger are capable of all kinds of disorders and fits of rage. It is impossible to recount all the extravagant things such a man does in this state. He races about without order or plan. He rushes and runs with impetusness. He attacks all whom he encounters. Anger, say the fathers, is like a poison of the soul through which the devil eats away at the soul from the inside. The remembrance of insults, resentment, and especially rancor, or like a venom that easily worms its way into all parts of the soul, poisoning the heart. The fathers even compare to a worm that gnaws at the mind, or to an all-devouring fire. By maintaining within himself anger, resentment, rancor, and hatred, man undermines and destroys himself. St. John Chrysostom notes, quote, For you suppose that you are paying him back the injury, but you are first tormenting yourself, and setting up your rage as an executioner within yourself in every part, and tearing up your own bowels. Held in the grip of these passionate attitudes, man no longer knows peace, but rather finds himself plunged into a state of sorrow and permanent worry. He who is resentful and retains an enemy will never have the enjoyment of any peace, incessantly raging as he does, says St. John Chrysostom. He says further, quote, The angry man deserves 10,000 punishments, voluntarily casting himself into the pit of destruction, and before the hell which is to come, suffering punishment from this already by bringing a certain restless turmoil and never silent storm of fury through all the night and through all the day upon the reasonings of his soul. End of quote. On the most basic level, namely, that of man's relationship with God, the passion of anger is shown to have particularly harmful effects. First of all, anger cuts man off from God. It not only opposes the righteous anger, righteous indignation, whose place it comes and takes, but also comes to strike and destroy another important virtue natural to the soul, gentleness, a form of charity through which man especially resembles God. In addition, writes St. Gregory the Great, the sin of anger by annihilating our soul's gentleness corrupts it in the likeness to the divine image. In other words, this means that the Holy Spirit ceases to abide in man and the evil spirit summoned by the person's attitude takes his place. Deprived of the spirit who conferred order and unity upon it, the soul finds itself divided and in disarray. St. Gregory the Great remarks, quote, As soon as the soul is deprived of the Holy Spirit, one sees it led off into obvious folly and scattered 
from the uttermost depth of its thoughts up to its most superficial expressions, end of quote. Previously, the same saint likewise noted that when anger strikes at the soul's gentleness, it perturbs it and, so to speak, rends it asunder and cuts it up so that it is divided against itself. Besides, with the retreat of the Holy Spirit, who illuminated it, the soul finds itself suddenly plunged into darkness. Above all, it is the eyes of the heart that are darkened. Henceforth, man falls away from true knowledge. St. Gregory the Great notes, God deprives the spirit over which anger has cast its pall of the radiance of his knowledge. The mind becomes incapable of contemplation. St. John Chrysostom writes, quote, Whatever the reason that the passion of anger arises, it blinds the eyes of the mind and puts a pernicious beam into the faculty of sight like a dangerous cataract, blocking the light of the sun of justice. End of quote from Institutes. And Evagrius, just as those whose sight is ill and who look at the sun are bothered by their tears and behold hallucinations in the air, so too when the noose is troubled by anger, it is unable to scrutinize by means of spiritual contemplation, but sees the objects it seeks to behold as though covered by a cloud. End of quote. Man especially becomes unable to perceive the presence of Christ within himself. In light of this context, it goes without saying that anger constitutes an obstacle for prayer, which, as Evagrius says, is precisely the fair flower of meekness and mildness that is in the absence of anger. Anger is calculated to destroy the state of prayer and destroys the soul's health which is linked to this, preventing man from leading the life for which he was made. While anger develops and reinforces wicked aggression, it simultaneously weakens the virtuous aggression given man by God for fighting against evil. The soul's might loses its knowledge of spiritual combat, and thus paralyzed, the soul becomes powerless, and every attempt at recovery turns out to be difficult. All these consequences, added to those previously described, are catastrophic for man. Anger definitely brings about his spiritual death, all the more so because it drives away from him all the virtues, and first of all destroys charity. Ceasing to destroy the demonic thoughts in conformity with its normal end goal, anger is used to destroy good thoughts as well. Correlatively, it engenders a gamut of passions, among which the principal ones are sadness, acedia, faint-heartedness, and pride. Chapter 9. Fear. The fathers classify fear among the passions along with all the neighboring states constituting its forms or degrees, such as dread, fright, and terror, but also anxiety, anguish, and distress. Generally speaking, fears provoked by the risk of loss or suffering, or by the idea or feeling that one is going to lose or could lose what is desired or what one is attached to. However, fear thus defined can be a virtue as well as a passion. Clement of Alexandria notes, quote, If fear too is a passion, yet not every fear is a passion. We must thus differentiate between two kinds of fear. 
The first kind of fear which God placed in man at his creation and which belongs to his nature is twofold. Its first form is a force that attaches man to his very being and causes him to fear the loss of himself, body and soul. Through this fear and its most basic manifestations, man is attached to life, to being, and fears everything that could corrupt or ruin them, feeling repulsed at the thought of non-being, as St. Maximus, who stresses that this tendency belongs to man's very nature, explains. Man has, quote, the might to attach himself to being and not to non-being. And it is a property, according to nature of this might, to strive toward what is able to preserve being and to repel what is able to destroy it. From St. Maximus, the confessor's dispute with Fierus. To continue, this this might is a part of the logai that God inserted into human nature at creation. He writes further, quote, Fear, according to nature, is the power to attach oneself to being in accordance with the rejection of what strives to destroy it. St. John Damascene also says that this fear is the rejection of everything that is destructive. One could say that it corresponds to the instinct of self-preservation, the instinct of life, and the innate tendency we have to persevere in being and to perpetuate our existence. In particular, it manifests itself as a fear of death, a natural tendency, since the Creator gave us life that we might preserve it, whereas corruption and death constitute unnatural phenomena. The second form is the fear of God, which on the lowest level is the fear of divine punishment, and on the highest level is the fear of being separated from God. The second form of fear is naturally linked to the preceding one. The man who is attached to his being and life and who fears their loss can only dread to be separated from God if he is aware of their true nature since God is their beginning and end, their source and meaning. The man who is conscious of his fundamental reality is much more afraid of losing his life in God than his biological life. This is why the fear of death is eclipsed in the spiritual man by the fear of everything able to separate him from God, that is, sin and the devil, both of which put the soul to death. The one death truly to be feared since it definitively takes away life. Why biological death only affects a temporary separation of body and soul. Destroying only the earthly and corrupted form of existence. The first kind of fear whose two forms we've just presented constitutes a virtue Adam possessed in his original state. Indeed, Adam was destined to become immortal by grace, but was capable of dying on account of his free will, should he use it to oppose God's will. This is why God said to Adam and Eve, quote, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Genesis 2.17 Simultaneous fear of dying and of being separated from God was a means given by God in order to help man keep his commandment and to preserve, preserve himself from the consequences of his transgression. The second kind of fear, which the fathers consider as a passion, is a consequence of the ancestral sin, always appearing as a repulsion that man experiences when confronted with what can corrupt and destroy his being. But what matters here now is no longer man's being 
according to God, but his fallen being, to which is it attached through self-love. This fear is always in the main a fear of death, but no longer for the same reason as mentioned above. The forms it takes are most varied, and it would be tedious to enumerate them here. Let us characterize it, as does St. Maximus, as a part of the passions due to the privation of pleasure, and like these arises when self-love is bruised by some suffering of soul and body. Man is afraid to lose, and is afraid of what can make him lose a sensible object, whose possession, whether real or anticipated in the imagination, procures for him a certain sensual pleasure. The idea or feeling of this possible loss engenders in his soul a state of discomfort and unrest whose effects can also be felt in the bodily level. Quote, sometimes the soul and sometimes the flesh turns coward first. And at any rate, the one passes its infirmity onto the other, as St. John Climacus notes from the latter 21. Every case of fear as a passion reveals an attachment to this world, to the goods of this world and the sensual pleasures in them, as well as to this life, inasmuch as it is conceived as having to serve the attainment of this kind of pleasure. Henceforth, as we see in the context of natural fear, we can link to this form of fear every fear of death, other than the fear of losing life recognized as a good conferred by God and bound to serve in uniting man to him, but rather the fear of losing the sensual pleasures whose delight is permitted by life in this world. This essential relationship between the passion of fear and life according to the world, life conceived of and lived in a carnal fashion, is frequently brought out in the teachings of the fathers. St. Isaac writes, quote, When man remains in the knowledge of and life of the body, he fears death. A saying of the Desert Fathers mentions, quote, Someone asked an elder, Why am I afraid while walking through the desert? He replied, Because you are still alive. And another one, a brother asked an elder, Why does fear grip me so when it happens that I must go out alone at night? And the elder replied, Because you still value the life of this world. While the first kind of fear is according to nature, this second kind of fear is an evil passion, contrary to nature, and irrational. It comes from man's turning away the twofold normal and natural end goal of his fear, which attached him to his true being and to God so as to turn it into fear of losing his fallen being, of being separated from the sensible world, of losing impassioned life and the pleasures connected to it. In place of fearing what threatens his being and, most importantly, his spiritual being, man begins to fear everything that jeopardizes his sensible existence and the pleasures he derives from it. Here again, it seems that fear according to God and mundane fear do not constitute two different attitudes by nature, but rather the same fundamental attitude oriented toward two different goals. This clearly emerges from the teachings of the Holy Fathers, where the two are presented as mutually exclusive. If one is afraid of something of this world, it is because one does not fear God. Conversely, he who fears God has nothing to dread. St. John Climacus, for example, writes, quote, 
He who has become the servant of the Lord will fear his master alone. But he who does not yet fear him is often afraid of his own shadow. The fathers likewise say, For this reason that barrenness of soul and the loss of the divine presence within it contribute to the passion of fear. Adam confesses after his sin, quote, I was afraid because I was naked, Genesis 3.10. As with all the other passions, fear appears to the fathers as a sickness. On account of the fundamental reason we have just presented, to wit, the perversion of a natural virtuous disposition into a contranatural passion, but also on account of all the troubles constituting it and engendered by it. First of all, fear reveals a pathological relationship of man to God. Afraid of losing some earthly good and some sensual pleasure instead of being afraid of losing God and thus oneself, man turns away from God, the source of his life, the beginning and end of his being, the meaning of his existence, and centers his preoccupations in the sensible reality that becomes for him the absolute. One sees that the entire process of ancestral sin is found again in this attitude, with, of course, all its consequences. However, in fear, God is not only forgotten as the beginning and end of being in life, as the meaning and center of existence, he's equally negated, ignored, and rejected in the providential action and benevolent protection that he exercises with regard to every being. Fear reveals the illusion that man has of being given over to himself, of only being able or having to depend on his own might, of lacking God's help. Someone asked a Yerunda, why am I afraid when walking in the desert? He said, because you think you are alone and do not see God with you. The teaching of Christ himself denounces this illusion in reminding man that God continuously takes care of him. See Matthew chapter 10 verses 29 and following, Luke chapter 12 verses 6 and following, Mark chapter 4 verses 36 and following. Fear is also the sign of a lack of faith in divine providence. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? says Christ to his disciples frightened by a tempest. Moreover, fear expresses a lack of faith in spiritual goods, for if man were attached to them, he would fear to lose them alone. Quote, the only grief is the loss of divine things, says St. Maximus. These goods are indeed the only ones that are to have an absolute value and vital importance for man. The man who trusts in God become, becoming a participant in Christ's resurrection and divine life no longer has to fear any attack on body or soul, not even that of death which temporarily kills the body but can do nothing more. Matthew 10.28, Luke 12.4 he who unites himself to God finds in, in him the totality of goods and is not afraid of being divested of any sensible good. To fear is not only not having faith in the spiritual goods, which alone are real, it is at the same time to accord a vain faith to the sensible goods whose reality is illusory, which pass away like the flower of the field, and which are treasures destroyed by moth and rust and stolen by thieves. Sooner or later, on account of their transitory character, or as a result of his own death, 
Man loses these things as well as the pleasure accompanying their possession. A pleasure, moreover, that, as we have seen, is itself next to nothing in comparison with the delight of the goods of the kingdom. Fallen man can be haunted by fear because he is mistaken concerning the true reality of the objects and sensual desires to which he is attached. If he knew their nature, he would be indifferent to their loss. Another reason why fear appears to be an insane attitude is its utter uselessness. Through fear, man cannot prevent anything from happening to him and cannot avoid the danger or privation he dreads, assuming that they are really bound to happen to him. Christ says, quote, And which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to his span of life? Matthew 6, 27. St. John Damascene opposes the ineffective fear and worry condemned by Christ in these words with the efficacious lack of concern of him who in all things gives himself over to divine providence. The pathological character of fear likewise shows up in the more or less important part of the imagination that the passions usually entails. Through his imagination, man deforms reality and attributes to it dimensions it does not possess, for example, exaggerating dangers or believing the loss of some object to be imminent. But the imagination only presents itself with a non-existence realities. It constructs, anticipates, and causes to admit as certain, whether in the present or the near future, events that do not exist and whose realization cannot be assured by any objective reason. St. John Climacus thus gives this definition of fear, quote, fear is a rehearsing of danger beforehand, or again, fear is a trembling sensation of the heart, alarmed and troubled by unknown misfortunes. Then he adds, noting how fear causes the most certain things to be questioned again in the name of what the imagination dreads and observing the role the imagination plays in this, writes, quote, fear is a loss of assurance, also from Ladder 21. A, a deformation of reality, the non-perception of what is, and the perception of a non-existent reality, these are all traits defining delusion. Fear always shows that the imagination has supplanted the other faculties with respect to how that which is real is perceived and lived and has imposed its representations on them. St. John Damascene notes, quote, fright comes from too powerful an imagination, end of quote. Whereas fear or fright, while most often comprising a large part of the imagination, are in part objectively motivated, most forms of fear, and especially anxiety and anguish, are characterized by an absence of objective reasons which can thus serve as the basis for the grip of the irrational on the person subjugated to it. The faculties that would permit man to consider things and events according to their proper proportions are as though suffocated by fear. The author of the Book of Wisdom observes, quote, for fear is nothing but surrender of the helps that come from reason. Fear can be aroused or aided in its birth and development by various passions. First of all, it is closely linked with pride. St. Isaac the Syrian remarks, quote, He who lacks humility is devoid of perfection, and he who is devoid of perfection is always afraid. 
St. John Climacus writes, A proud soul is a slave of cowardice. It vainly trusts in itself and is afraid of any sound or shadow of creatures. Fear is also linked quite obviously to the passion of cowardice, as St. Simeon the New Theologian recounts. Generally speaking, fear can be born from a state of sin, according to the teaching of the apostles. Quote, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Romans 2.9 St. John the Golden Mouth remarks, quote, He who lives in sin is in perpetual fear, and just as those who are on the road in a dark moonless night always tremble, although there is no one there to frighten them, so two sinners are constantly mistrustful, even though no one is reproaching them. But the remorse of their conscience causes everything to frighten them. Everything is suspect to them. For them, aught is full of fear and terror, and they behold only what troubles them. End of quote from the commentary on the Gospel of John. To continue... The application of these considerations does not seem restricted to those who, while trying to live according to the commandments, or at least to know them, have transgressed them, and consequently suffer the reproaches of their conscience. Likewise, they apply to those who, while living outside the faith and in ignorance of its precepts, nevertheless have some vague feeling of their sinful state. It even seems that the power of this sinful state to arouse fear in the guise of anxiety and anguish is all the stronger, since the one subject subjected has not become aware, fully aware of his fault. Evoking, quote, this fear that the soul experiences of its own vice, St. Diodokos of Fotiki counsels the Christian above all to keep watch over his conscience. For he writes, quote, if we do not confess our involuntary sins as we should, we shall discover an ill-defined fear in ourselves. Fear, like the other passions, is directly linked in part of the, to the activity of the demons. They contribute to its appearance and profit greatly from its existence, since fear forms a terrain particularly amiable to their activity. In fear, they have an ally, as St. Diodokos remarks, evoking in particular the fear linked to sin. Faint-heartedness. Faint-heartedness is often considered a form of the passion of fear, and so shares with the latter some of the traits described above. However, it also has a certain number of specific traits and is often accorded a significant place separately, which necessitates some supplementary comments on it alone. St. John Damascene defines the passion of faint-heartedness as the fear to perform an action. It is an attitude of weakness and of a lack of courage in the face of a task to be accomplished. It is always distinguished from cowardice. It is more like timidity. The fathers consider it to be a sickness. Origen includes it in his list of passions, which he himself calls sickness of the soul. And a saying of the Holy Fathers relates, quote, A brother went to find Abba Victor the Hezekist at the Lavra of Ulusa, and told him, What must I do, Father, for I am plagued by the passion of faint-heartedness? The elder replied, It is a sickness of the soul. 
Faintheartedness is a sickness of the soul's irascible power. St. John Cassian teaches, quote, If the plague of vice infects the irascible disposition, it will bring forth, among others, faintheartedness. This passion is also classified by the fathers as another form of madness. This is the case with St. John Chrysostom, for example, who refers to the affirmations of the book of Proverbs, He who is faint-hearted is very foolish. Proverbs 14.29 As with all the passions, faint-heartedness especially reveals its pathological character in the fact that it is an unnatural attitude not corresponding to the normative state in which God created man. Thus St. Paul teaches, quote, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. 1 Timothy 1.7 Power in particular being the virtue whose lack is constituted by faint-heartedness. While power is among the essential gifts of the Spirit, constituting the image of God and called to attain their full realization in the acquisition of Christ's likeness, faint-heartedness is the negation of this. It has appeared in man as a consequence of sin and is foreign to his true nature. For this reason, St. Barsanufius counsels one of his spiritual sons, quote, Say to faint-heartedness, I am a stranger to you. In any case, faint-heartedness, like fear, is a sign of a lack of faith. To show oneself to be faint-hearted is not to have confidence in divine help, in the power of the Spirit who constantly supports the man who invokes God. United to God, receiving His grace, and participating in His power, man cannot be afraid of accomplishing anything. With an absolute faith in God, he becomes capable of moving mountains, according to Christ's teaching. When he is dominated by his imagination, man is often afraid to act. The fathers often stress the relation of faint-heartedness to the imagination, as in the case of every form of fear. Here again, the imagination deforms reality, presenting as difficult, fearsome, or impossible the action to be accomplished although objectively it is nothing of the sort. The man subject to faint-heartedness is the victim of delusion, and one could say even of delirium. St. John Clemacus notes, quote, Fear is a trembling sensation of the heart, alarmed and troubled by unknown misfortunes. Abba Victor, following his words, cited above where he describes faint-heartedness as a sickness, says, Indeed, just as those whose eyes are sick think to see more light when they suffer more, whereas those whose eyes are healthy think to see little of it, so too the faint of heart are quickly upset by a small trial and imagine it to be a big one. Faint-heartedness can appear as a childish attitude that is settled and subsists abnormally in an, in an adult. St. John Climacus writes, Cowardice is a childish disposition in an old soul. Ladder 21. Step 21. It is mainly linked to the passion of vainglory, to such a degree that one can say all cowardly people are vainglorious. Faintheartedness alienates man, exercising a powerful dominion over him. It is particularly fearsome because it obstructs man's dynamism curbs his best impulses, slows down or even paralyzes his activity, and in many circumstances inhibits the exercise 
of his faculties. This proves to be particularly serious when one is dealing with spiritual activity. It is clear that the devil has a special interest in arousing and maintaining this passion that troubles the soul and prevents it from accomplishing that for which it was made. Chapter 10. Vainglory. The passion called nowadays vainglory or vanity is an especially significant passion and the source of numerous other illnesses of the soul. St. John Cassian notes that, quote, vainglory is multiform and multifarious and exists in many subdivisions, but nonetheless it is of two kinds, which are, as it were, two degrees. The first kind of vainglory is that by which we are uplifted because of carnal and external things. This is the crudest form of vainglory that affects fallen man in the most immediate, most frequent, and simplest way, consisting in his appearing proud, glorying in the goods which he possesses or believes to possess, and desiring to be seen, considered, admired, esteemed, honored, praised, and flattered by other men. A common feature of the goods that the conceited man is proud of is that they are carnal and earthly. The conceited man expects from his exclusive possession of them human glory and respect. Thus the conceited man can glory in himself and desire the admiration of others on account of the gifts bestowed on him by nature. For example, beauty, real or supposed, of body, or voice but also his bearing, presence, and everything that contributes to giving him a good appearance, that is, clothing, perfumes, jewels, etc. He could also take pride in or expect esteem for his manual dexterity or his expertise in such and such a field. See Dorotheus of Gaza Instructions. Vainglory likewise leads man to exalt himself and cause himself to be admired for the riches and material goods he's been able to acquire. In that way, vainglory can lead to the passion of love of money, which in turn is able to lead man to vainglory. St. Maximus the Confessor writes, quote, Vainglory and avarice produce each other. Those who are full of vainglory acquire riches, and those who are rich become full of vainglory, end of quote from his four centuries on charity. The taste for luxury and splendor appears linked to these two passions, aroused by vainglory and presupposing avarice. It increases them in return when it is satisfied. Likewise, man driven by vainglory often wishes to attain high social rank or standing. This passion also attaches man to power in all its forms and is frequently the cause for seeking it out. It is thus the ally and cause of the two passions the fathers call love of power and the spirit of domination. It is clear that whoever has power and is filled with vainglory seeks to be admired and praised but also constantly endeavors to please so as to maintain and increase this admiration as well as to preserve his power, the accompanying prerogatives and the advantages he gains from it. On a subtler level, because it is situated less in the domain of appearance and materiality than the preceding, although it is almost as widespread. 
Vainglory for the person subject to it consists in showing oneself proud of one's intellectual qualities, one's intelligence, imagination, memory, etc., but also of one's knowledge of or know-how, one's mastery of language, one's capacity to write or expatiate well, etc. And in seeking the attention, admiration, and praises of others for this, it seems that ambition within cultural and intellectual domains, as well as in the financial or political sector, is most often a product of vainglory. The second kind of vainglory distinguished by St. John Cassianos, quote, is that by which we are inflamed with the desire for empty praise because of spiritual and hidden things, end of quote. In the spiritual man still subject to the passions, this coexists with the first kind or takes its place when he has moved beyond all attachment to earthly goods. It consists for him in glorifying in himself or taking pride before other men in his virtues or ascesis and in seeking to have them admired and praised by others. Thus man finds himself particularly besieged by this second degree of vainglory when he tries hard to combat the other diverse passions and practice the virtues that negate them. St. John Climacus also notes that, quote, the spirit of vainglory rejoices at the sight of increasing virtue. And just as the ant waits for the gathering of the wheat, so too does vainglory for the gathering of the riches of virtue. Evagrius observes in the same vein, quote, alone among the thoughts, those of vainglory and pride arise after the defeat of the other thoughts. And the defeat of the other demons causes this thought to increase. St. Maximus likewise remarks, quote, when you overcome one of the grosser passions, the thought of vainglory at once assails you. Vainglory is thus able to take for itself within man the place of all other passions combined. Vainglory possesses an extraordinary power. Its subtle character, its capacity for taking on numerous forms, for creeping in everywhere, and for attacking man from many sides makes it especially difficult to perceive and combat. Indeed, everything can be subject, a subject of vanity for man. Evagrius is amazed at the demon's skill in profiting from this situation, for which he gives characteristic examples in his institutes, as do St. John Cassian and St. John Climacus. St. John Cassian writes, The elders have an apt way of describing the nature of this affliction as being like an onion, and that when you peel off one skin, another is found immediately underneath, and new skins are uncovered as often as you peel them off. And St. John Climacus explains, quote, The sun shines on all alike, and vainglory beams on all activities. For instance, I am vainglorious when I fast, and when I relax the fast in order to be unnoticed, I am again vainglorious over my prudence. When well-dressed, I am quite overcome by vainglory, and when I put on poor clothes, I am vainglorious again. When I talk, I am defeated, and when I am silent, I am again defeated by it. However I throw this prickly pear, a spike stands upright. End of quote. 
from the ladder of divine ascent is step 22.5 to continue dr larchet writes henceforth evagrius observes quote it is only with considerable difficulty that one can escape the thought of vainglory for what you do to destroy it becomes the principle of some other form of vainglory the subtlety of vainglory is such that it can bring man paradoxically to show himself zealous in ascases, in fighting certain passions and in practicing certain virtues, as well as in obtaining certain charismata. However, it must be said that every ascetic feat pursued under the impulse of vainglory is essentially shown to be fruitless, just as the virtues practiced thus are illusory and the obtained charismata only apparent. One thus sees men achieve astounding spiritual results in the time during which they give themselves over to ascases by force of vainglory, but then toil and misery and wither when they are put under conditions in which this passion that inspires them can no longer be exercised. Moreover, the goods thus acquired are not only of no value before God, but furthermore are like injustices. As St. Macarius stresses, recalling this word of the psalmist, quote, for God will scatter the bones of men pleasers. End of quote. Psalm 52, 6. As with all the passions, man draws a certain pleasure from vainglory that strongly attaches him to the passion and for the attainment of which he is ready to do everything and paradoxically to suffer everything. It is because of this often powerful pleasure that maintains his love of self, that man gives himself up to vainglory. The fathers consider vainglory to be a sickness and again a form of madness. St. John Chrysostom, for example, writes bluntly, quote, vainglory is a kind of madness. He notes that St. Paul himself teaches that it is madness to glory in oneself and further remarks that the demon of vainglory causes man to be beside himself, leads his mind astray, and after seizing his soul, quote, troubles his reason to the point of delirium. The pathological character of vainglory, like that of all the other passions, derives from it being constituted by the perversion of a normal and natural attitude, the deviation of its functioning from according to nature, in conformity with its essential end goal, to a contra-natural functioning. God gave this passion to human nature so as to strive for glory. But man was destined to obtain the divine glory in his union with God and not the human glory sought by his passion and which the tradition calls glory after the flesh. See 2 Corinthians eleven eighteen. Quote, it is not glory but vainglory that is evil, writes St. Maximus, saying here what he says about the other passions, namely, it is only the misuse of things that is evil, and such misuse occurs when the intellect fails to cultivate its natural powers. After stating that, when we misuse the soul's powers, their evil aspects dominate us. St. John Climacus teaches the same, quote, It is natural for the soul to desire glory, but the glory on high. This distinction between the two kinds of glory, that which comes from God and that which comes from men, is found in many texts on the topic of vainglory. One finds this distinction explicitly stated in the Gospel according to St. John, John chapter 12, verse 43, 
St. Paul refers to it implicitly when he says he glories in Jesus Christ, all the while guarding himself against the danger there would be in glorying outside of God. See Philippians 3.3 Galatians 6.14. St. John Climacus states clearly, quote, There is a glory that comes from the Lord. For he says, Those who glorify me, I will glorify. 1 Kings 2.30. And there is a glory that dogs us through diabolical intrigue. Twice the Apostle Paul teaches, Let him who boasts, boast of the Lord. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. To continue, The glory man receives of God through the participation in his glory is the union to Christ, is the only one, says Origen, which truly merits the name thereof. It is the only glory that is real, true, absolute, and eternal, and on the other hand, the only one that corresponds to human nature's end goal and to the scale of the grandeur that God desired to confer upon man. As St. John Chrysostom says, it is the glory proper to the dignity of man. Having turned away from God through his sin, Man ceases at the same time to strive for this glory to which he is destined by nature. But continuing by nature to be desirous of glory, he then seeks to satisfy this tendency within himself in the sensible world to which he has gone over. It is in this worldly glory, after the flesh, that he finds substitutes for the spiritual and celestial glory that he has lost sight of. St. John Chrysostom writes again, quote, Having lost the glory proper to the dignity of man, he seeks from all quarters such glory as is worthy of all ridicule. The search after worldly glory thus appears as the way in which man miserably compensates for the absence within himself of the celestial glory, and of what, in uniting him to God, makes him a participant in this divine glory, to wit, the virtues. St. Dorotheus of Gaza writes, quote, those who desire glory are like a naked man who does not stop looking for a scrap of cloth or anything so as to cover his indecency. Thus does he who is stripped of the virtues seek the glory of men. Quote. All in all, vainglory seems then to be constituted by a perversion, by a pathological corruption of man's natural tendency towards glorification, and a pathological behavior of substitution as a result of an ontological frustration, frustration of being. The fact that one is dealing here again with a single tendency oriented in two opposite directions, and not with two tendencies different in essence and able to coexist independently of other, clearly emerges from the Father's numerous affirmations of the fact that the search for heavenly glory and that of vainglory are antagonistic and exclusive of each other. The development of one translates into the weakening of the other. One can add that in yet another sense, vainglory constitutes a perversion of nature, this last word being understood more broadly in signifying all the goods man has received from God, whether they be his natural or acquired qualities, his virtues, or even the material goods he possesses. By using these, for his own glory, instead of making them serve exclusively the glory of God, man falsifies nature and virtue itself, says St. Maximus.
In particular, he explains that ostentation, composed of vainglory and pride, quote, has an alienating aversion to nature with which it manages all the things of nature in a way contrary to nature. Vainglory plunges man into delusion and delirium. This is one of its basic pathological effects, justifying its frequent description as madness by the Holy Fathers, who note that it reveals that man has ceased to have faith in God. In saying this, they follow the teaching of Christ himself, who asks, quote, How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? John 5, 44. On the contrary, vainglory expresses an attachment to the world. The person affected by it starts having faith in men, from whom he expects attention, esteem, admiration, praise, and in all that is able to arouse these attitudes in them with respect to him. This is why St. John Climacus describes the conceited man as an idolater, as does St. Macarius, who notes, quote, the men who speak his praises are his gods. John the Solitary says that the ignorance of this life is the cause of vainglory and forms the basis of the delusion to which the vain man falls victim. He is indeed as ignorant of the true value of the things from which he takes glory as of this glory itself. He accords them a reality and significance that they in truth lack. He acts as though they had an absolute and lasting value, whereas they are extremely fragile and temporary. He is unaware that divine glory alone is perfect and eternal, and that the spiritual designs of glorification and theosis in God are the only ones to be authentically real. John the Solitary writes, quote, Since men understand neither the fragility of the goods of this life, nor the vanity of the glory that comes from them, and since they perceive neither the excellence of God's works, nor the wisdom of his providence, nor the smallness of the nature of men, who before flourishing wilt, before coming to power dissolve, and before being exalted are humbled, whose natural condition is subject to every change, and whose every creation is destined for decay. And since they do not endeavor to meditate on these things, they are surprised by the love of mutual praise, especially seeing that man does not reflect enough so as to say, of what value is this vanity which holds me captive, to the point that I prefer the regard of men to the regard of God, and that I am found of their praises and not of God's, as if the glory that comes from them were for me superior to that which comes from the universal master, as if I held the honor of men equal to that of angels. End of quote. Even the name vainglory indicates its vain, futile, fragile, fleeting, and superficial character, just like that of the world whose form is passing away. 1 Corinthians 7.31 Whence it draws forth its sustenance, and which the fathers, after the example of the prophet Isaiah, compare to the flower of the field. Isaiah 40 Or again to a dream, and all other kinds of realities lacking duration and solidity. St. John the Golden Mouth asks, quote, Why do you run after a shadow instead of grasping truth? 
Why do you seek what perishes and not what lasts? Abandon the smoke, the pure shadow, the vile grass, the spider webs. It is impossible to find a word that expresses properly this miserable insubstantiality. He says further, Human things are but dust and ashes. It is dust that the wind scatters. It is a shadow, a wisp of smoke. It is the leaf that is the plaything of a puff of air. It is a flower, a dream, a sound that passes, a light breeze that vanishes at random. It is the flimsy feather that is caught up in flight. It is the water that flows away. It is less than all this. End of quote. In connection with these observations, he also stresses the pathological character of the attachment to vain carnal realities. Here from St. John's commentary on Psalms, quote, glory is a name and nothing but a name. What then is the insane man who attaches himself to names without reality, to phantoms that one ought to flee? The prophet also groans to behold such insanity in our life. Like a man who, upon seeing someone flee the light and seek the darkness, would say to him, Why do you act so madly? The prophet likewise asks us, Why do you cherish vanity and seek out lies for yourselves? Vainglory thus appears to include a delirious vision of reality, since under its grip man ceases to accord reality, value, and significance to what is real, valuable, and important. Instead, he acknowledges as such those things which are not real, have no value, and lack significance. His worldview is inverted, the phronema, turned upside down. His mind wanders in the valuations he places on things in such a way that he seems stricken with madness. St. John Chrysostom observes, quote, The man seized by this passion loses, so to speak, the lucidity of perceptions, and is no less afflicted than the mad. This delirious perception of reality under the influence of vainglory shows up frequently in the most ordinary events of daily life, and in oft-times crude guises. St. Maximus, for example, notes that just as to passionately fond parents their own children seem the most capable and most beautiful of all, though they might be quite the most ridiculous in every way, so to a foolish intellect its own thoughts appear the most intelligent of all, though they may be utterly degraded. This is true not only of the first kind of vainglory. In the second one, as well, man displays a delirious consciousness, especially of himself. St. John Climacus writes, Vainglory is a change of nature, a perversion of character. By it, man attributes to himself qualities and virtues he does not possess, and does not see the faults and passions that in reality dwell in him. But he also deludes himself when he glories in the virtues that he truly possesses. On the one hand, he considers himself the source and proprietor of these virtues, although in fact they are a gift from God and belong fundamentally to him alone. On the other hand, as St. John Climacus stresses, as soon as man takes pride in his virtues, he ceases by this very act to be virtuous, and thus boasts of what he no longer possesses. 
vainglory, dooms the man it possesses of all kinds of evils. Those who act so to be glorified by men have already received their reward, says Christ, who also issues this warning, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, Luke 6.26. The psalmist observes, For God will scatter the bones of the men-pleasers, Psalm 52.6. St. Maximus writes elsewhere, quote, Distress and pain follow vainglory and sensual pleasure, either in this life or after death. St. John Chrysostom remarks that the desire for honors is the source of the greatest evils. And with regard to seeking after first place under the influence of vainglory, he notes, this passion is tyrannical. St. Diodocus of Photiki notes on his part that the demons particularly seize upon love of glory as an occasion for their malice, and that through it they slip into the soul, as through a window at night, and despoil it. This passion destroys inner peace by agitating the soul in manifold ways. St. Isaac the Syrian notes, Vainglory maintains continuous unrest and confusion of thoughts. And St. Mark the Ascetic remarks, When you observe some thought suggesting that you seek human fame, you can be sure it will bring you disgrace. First of all, this passion causes man to be preoccupied with obtaining the admiration and praises he desires, thus filling his soul with constant worry and burying him away to an often feverish and anxious agitation. This worry is multiplied when the passion does not reach its satisfaction. Thus it frequently happens that the conceited man does not receive from others the attention and admiration he expects, but rather encounters the opposite result. St. John Climacus notes, Vainglory is often the cause of dishonor instead of honor. And St. Mark the Ascetic notes, When you see someone overcome by contempt, know that he is filled with the thought of vainglory. Instead of the awaited praises, he arouses at best indifference. At worst, he draws hatred to himself, provokes envy and jealousy, and causes criticism and sarcasm to be born, particularly when his vanity is made manifest in his words or shows through his attitudes. Thus St. John Chrysostom addresses this admonition to his listeners. Quote, Let us beware, therefore, of saying anything about ourselves, for this renders us both odious to men and abominable to God from his commentary on the Gospel of St. Matthew. To continue, without fail, such a situation will engender sadness and anguish in man, since on the one hand he finds himself deprived of the pleasure expected by the passion, and on the other hand he must face the aggression of those around him and suffer the loss of harmonious relations with them, being obliged to preoccupy himself with the very difficult search of replacing the means of showing off which have failed with yet others. Under vainglory's sway, man loses his autonomy and is alienated not only from the passion itself, but also from all those he needs so that the passion can be nourished. St. John Chrysostom emphasizes the especially tyrannical character of this passion, which he considers as the last and most miserable of servitudes and which ends up dominating the greatest souls. Like every other passion, 
vainglory subjects man to his specific carnal desires and to the corresponding pleasure. But in addition, it makes man dependent on the regard and esteem of others, the slave of those whom he seeks to please because he awaits their praises. John the solitary cries out, Wretch that I am, God created me free, and upon me weighs the dominion of many people, since by desiring to please everyone, I am everyone's slave. Another dangerous and formidable effect of vainglory is to plunge man into a phantasmal world. St. Isaac the Syrian notes that those who are born away by vanity lose their reason. Indeed, inspired by this passion, man imagines himself as having all kinds of qualities, virtues, merits, goods, etc., and envisions himself in situations or states which merit him respect and praises. St. Isaac notes, Vainglory invents and imagines personages and leads one to desire and project oneself. The first pathological consequence of this is to detach man from the reality he lives, to divert his attention from what is around him, to slow down his activity in his most essential tasks, and to paralyze his vigor to the point of putting his soul in a state of numbness. St. John Cassianos thus evokes these pathological traits from his institutes, quote, The unhappy soul is manipulated by conceit in this way, as if it were dreaming in the deepest sleep, so that, seduced by pleasant thoughts of this kind and full of fancies, he is unable to notice present reality or the brothers he is with, while he is wrapped in the consideration of these products of his daydreams as if they were real. End of quote. Dr. Larche continues, This process of phantasm formation can be the cause of acute delirious episodes or of hallucinations if it is maintained and developed. Evagrius observes, Vainglory is the source of the illusions of the mind. This outcome is to be feared, in particular by the spiritual man who gives free rein to this passion and thus offers favorable ground to the demon of vainglory who has the custom of attacking in force at the moment of prayer. Evagrius writes, When the spirit prays purely without being led astray, then the demons no longer come upon it from the left side, but from the right. That is to say, they suggest the semblance of God to it in the form of some image that is flattering to the senses in the hope of leading it to think it has attained the aim of its prayer. Now, a certain contemplative man, an excellent person, has remarked that this phenomenon is due to the passion of vainglory. Moreover, he explains that this passion exerts its influence on the mind so that it attempts to enclose the divinity in form and figure. The demons anticipate this tendency and respond to it so as to lead astray the man unfortunate enough to allow it to develop within himself. Pelagius, in his Losaic History, cites the example of a monk who had thus become mad under the influence of vainglory. He writes, His judgment was altered by the disorder of vainglory. On the spiritual level, the pathological effects of vainglory are also quite extensive. The passion brings about man's spiritual death, blinds his spirit, troubles him, and considerably reduces his knowledge. 
Vainglory destroys all the virtues man has acquired and renders useless all his ascetical efforts. St. Maximus remarks that because of it, quite a few things that are good in themselves cease to be so. Yet, yes, ascesis and the virtues it aims to develop serve to unite man to God and make man in the end a partaker of divine glory. But through vainglory, man diverts them from this normal end goal so as to have them serve his own glory and to incite a glorification coming from men or himself and not from God as it ought to. This loss of the fruits of ascesis and of the virtues, besides constituting in itself a spiritual catastrophe, is inevitably followed by the engendering of a state of suffering in the soul. Deprived of its most precious goods and the spiritual delight it took in them, the soul finds itself empty and helpless. It is filled with turmoil and unrest and is doomed to a permanent dissatisfaction. For if the pleasure that accompanies vainglory can sometimes gratify the soul, it is unable to preserve this power for long by reason, as we have said, of its partial, fleeting, and unreal character in the image of the carnal objects on which it feeds, and the end submerges the soul in disappointment and bitterness. St. John Cashin writes, quote, Vainglory is a food which for a time delights you with its taste but leaves you empty afterwards, robbed of all virtue, stripped, and incapable of any spiritual fruit. This food does not only deprive you of the merit of all your great labors, but even loads a greater penalty on you. Destroying the acquired virtues, vainglory first of all causes the corresponding passions to reappear in the soul, and subsequently opens the door to all the other passions. As we have seen, the fathers rank vainglory among the three general passions that are the source of all the others. St. Mark the ascetic describes it as the root of wicked desires, the cause of all vices, the mother of evils, and teaches that it naturally leads to the slavery of sin. More than anything, vainglory introduces pride. It is the forerunner, beginning, and mother of pride, as well as of all the passions linked to it, that of blasphemy, judgment, contempt of others, the spirit of domination and love of power, hard-heartedness, and disobedience. Vainglory also gives birth to anger and all its companions, hatred, rancor, jealousy, discord, and quarreling. Other passions proceeding from it are lying, hypocrisy, garrulity, faint-heartedness, lust, love of money and greed, and as we have already underscored, sadness. In conclusion, let us note that the demons play a very active role in the birth and development of vainglory. St. John of Gaza teaches that everything accompanied by vainglory comes from the devil, and St. Barsanufius affirms that the demons favor this passion in their goal of causing the soul to perish. Even if they do not introduce it, nonetheless, they take advantage of its birth or presence in the soul so as to give themselves over to their destructive activity. St. Diodocus of Photiki in the Philokalia again writes, quote, Using love of praise in particular as a pretext for their evil schemes, the demons slip into the soul as through a window at night, and despoil it. 
He who accepts this passion within himself thus accomplishes the devil's will, only to become his slave and plaything in the end. Abba Isaiah notes, quote, He who loves to be glorified by men delivers his soul to his enemies, and they give it over to many evils and lay hold of it. Chapter 11, Pride Pride is very close to vainglory, so close that many fathers do not think it useful to study these two passions separately. Thus they study only seven general passions instead of eight. If one considers the order of the passions from the viewpoint of ascetical combat and progress, one advances from the crudest passions to those which are the most subtle and most difficult to defeat. And so pride follows vainglory. Envisaged from this angle, the passion of pride is presented as the summit of vainglory or as its product, developed to its highest degree. Thus St. John Climacus writes that the only difference between the two passions is such as there is between a child and a man, between wheat and bread, for the one is the beginning and the other their end. Pride is inevitably born of vainglory to a certain degree. St. John Cassian stresses, growth in the first becomes the start of the second. St. John of Gaza also notes that if vainglory increases, pride appears. And St. John Climacus observes conversely that no one still holds on to pride after vanquishing vainglory. Nonetheless, from another viewpoint, less defined by ascetical practice and envisioning envisaging the passions according to the degree of their seriousness, moving from the most primary and fundamental ones to their derivatives, pride appears as the first of all the passions, giving birth to vainglory as its firstborn, and for this reason having close and intimate ties with it. If on a certain level the line between vainglory and pride seems blurry, this level is essentially the one on which, however one may see it, one of these passions passes into the other. As for the other levels, each one possesses specific traits which we will present, presently define for pride as we have done for vainglory. Like vainglory, pride consists of two forms or components. The first manifests itself particularly in man's relationship with his fellow men, while the other concerns man's relationship with God. The first form of pride consists in man's thinking himself to be superior to other men, or at least to such or such a man among men, and also in seeking after this superiority if he does think he possesses it already. In each case, pride consists in exalting oneself, be it without any particular motive, or as is most often the case, for the same reasons which can serve as a pretext for vainglory as we presented them in the previous chapter. Physical, intellectual, and or spiritual qualities, social rank, riches, etc. In this exaltation, the proud man respects and admires himself, congratulates himself, and praises himself in his own heart. One also finds these attitudes in vainglory, but whereas with that passion man expects primarily the praises of others, in pride man praises himself, 
although both these processes are at work in the two passions. When he exalts himself, the proud man correspondingly belittles his neighbor. He looks down on him, scorning him, and going as far as taking no notice of him as though he were nothing. Attitudes con constituting another fundamental character of this first form of pride. Pride drives man to pit himself against his neighbor, and before affirming his superiority in relation to him, to assert what distinguishes him and what he believes makes him fundamentally different than his neighbor. The archetype of this attitude is presented to us in the Holy Gospels by example of the Pharisee who says, I am not like other men or even like this tax collector. Through pride, man feels the need to compare himself and establish hierarchies before concluding that he is superior, absolutely or relatively, in some area or another, even in all the areas he can imagine. For this he is led in particular to judge his neighbor unfavorably and to criticize almost systematically his way of thinking and living. This form of pride translates into a certain number of attitudes that in themselves contribute to its definition. St. Basil notes that the proud man, quote, shows off what he has and endeavors to appear greater than he is in reality. On this occasion, as on others, he appears arrogant, self-infatuated, and self-content, full of assurance and confident in himself. To this is often added the pretense of knowing everything and the almost constant assurance of being right, whence not only the madness of justifying oneself and the spirit of contradiction, also traits of this passion, come forth, but also the desire to teach and command. Pride makes the person it affects blind to his own faults, causes him to refuse a priori every criticism and to hate every reproach and reprimand and makes it intolerable for him to be commanded and to have to submit himself to anyone at all. This passion is also re revealed in a certain aggression, sometimes expressed as irony, but sometimes also as bitterness in response to the questions of others, a guarded silence in certain circumstances, a general animosity, the desire to offend one's neighbor and ease in doing so. This aggression regularly appears in response to the smallest criticisms offered by others. Whereas the first form of pride exalts a man before his fellow men, the second form exalts him before God, setting him up against him, the Theanthropos, Christ. Pride then appears as an extremely serious passion. The fathers all constantly stress that it is the worst passion of all, recalling that pride was what provoked the fall of Satan and of the angels that became demons, and then that of man himself. Precisely in the analysis of the causes of this original fall, one can clearly see what it is that forms the foundation and essence of pride. We have already had the opportunity to show that the ancestral sin, as much for man as for the devil, consisted in making oneself into a god, claiming an absolute autonomy for oneself in wishing to surpass God, attempting to attribute to oneself every quality, seeking one's own glory 
making oneself into an absolute center and asserting one's superiority in everything. Thus, St. John Climacus explains the sin and fall of Satan. Quote, he came to believe that the splendid wisdom and beautiful virtue which God's grace had bestowed on him was the result of his own natural ability and not a gift from God's goodness. Preening himself on this, as if he needed no divine help in maintaining his pure state, he considered himself equal to God, as if, like God, he had no need of any other. Overconfident in his freedom of will, he thought that would be enough to supply him with all he needed for perfect virtue and perpetual happiness. That single thought of his was the primal fall. End of quote from St. John Climacus. Kashinos, forgive me, <clears throat> institutes. To continue. The same saint also cites this word of the psalmist, Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his vanity. Moreover, he recalls that sin consisted for man in giving in to the diabolical temptation that promised, You will be like God's. St. John Chrysostom notes, In imagining that he would become God, he lost the state he already possessed. He also observes that this same sin is perpetuated under the devil's influence in all men who adopt a proud attitude. Quote, this proud angel causes them to fall into the same impiety by misleading them with the illusion that they will become like God. Pride, then, appears as a negation or denial of God, which for man can sometimes take, as in Satan's case, the form of open rebellion. However, these most often manifest themselves in a less striking manner as, quote, a refusal of divine aid and the presumptuous confidence in one's own strength. The proud man refuses to consider that God is the author of his nature, the beginning and end of his being, as well as the source of all the qualities and goods he possesses, so as to attribute them to himself. Most of the time the passion takes this second form in the spiritual man, whom it especially tends to attack, and whom it causes to believe that he himself is the source of his virtues and the cause of his good works, correlatively leading him to disregard God's help. St. Dorotheus says that the second form of pride consists in attributing one's good works to oneself and not to God. The same teaching is found in Evagrius and St. Maximus, according to whom the proud man is he who, quote, is puffed up with the goods given by God, as if they came by his own proper actions. He says further that we experience pride if we think that the possession of virtue and knowledge is our own accomplishment according to nature and is not superadded to us by grace. In other words, the spiritual man appears proud if he imagines his virtues to be the expression of his own worth and as emanating from his own merit, whereas they exist only through participation in the divine perfections and are a gift of the spirit. The same is true if he imagines under the influence of this passion that by his own might he has obtained victory over the passions that possessed him, whereas the victory comes from God. 
Thus one understands that the Holy Fathers observe that this second form of pride, quote, attacks more specifically those who have profited from some virtue and appears with greater vehemence when the other vices are rooted out. St. John Chrysostom goes so far as to say, the other evils come forth in us through our negligence, while we contract this one, that is pride by doing good. Pride then comes to occupy all by itself the place in the soul of the vanquished passions. However, pride does not take the place of the other passions only when they are fought against and annihilated. It can also do so when, for some other reason, for some reason or other, the passions lie asleep or in hiding without ceasing to exist in the meanwhile or without being diminished except in appearance. St. Maximus thus notes, quote, We grow proud when the passions cease to be active within us, and whether they are inactive because their causes have been eradicated or because the demons have deliberately withdrawn in order to deceive us. St. John Climacus, evoking the same passion, specifies some of the faithful and even of the unfaithful have been deserted by all the passions except one, and that one has been left as a permanent, paramount evil, which fully takes the place of all the others. End of quote from Ladder 26, Step 26. To continue, one sees that even here, that if the second form of pride threatens spiritual men in particular, one would be wrong to think that it spares other men. If it is often less noticeable in the latter, it is because this passion permeates their whole being, and in fact consists in the maintaining of their state of separation from God. To live outside God, to lead a totally autonomous existence independent of Him, and to affirm oneself as the sole beginning and end of one's existence, is a manifestation of this basic pride that perpetuates the ancestral sin. To the extent that he lives outside of God, every man is unaware of him or forgets him just for a moment, implicitly denying him, taking his place and thus evincing the pride that inhabits him. Man, one can say, is revealed as proud to some degree and that he remains in a state of relative separation from God. Only the saint who has achieved total union with God and is totally transparent to him escapes from this passion, while all other men remain victims of it, even if they are unaware of it or deny it. St. John Climacus observes, quoting an elder, quote, What clearer proof of this passion of pride could you have given us, son, than to say, I am not proud? Though the two kinds of pride we have presented are very different, they are not separate and independent. They are like the two faces of pride, and are always present together in fallen man, even though the one can seem to be more predominant in some cases. If it is true that the first form sets man up against his fellow men, while the second arrays him against God, St. John Cassian notes that each one in fact arrays man simultaneously against God and his neighbor. For it is clear that man's attitude with regard to other people is at the core related to his attitude towards God and vice versa. On the other hand, it is clear that the first form of pride has its origin and foundation in the second. If man exalts himself, respects himself, or admires himself, it is because he does not recognize 
that the qualities, virtues, and all the goods he may possess, and thinks to have by his own efforts, in fact, come to him from God. If he denigrates others, it is in part for the same reason. St. Maximus observes that despising others for not knowing how to behave themselves, for example, amounts to attributing good actions to one's own strength instead of relating them to God. To think oneself superior to others, to seek to surpass them, to put oneself at the top or to take oneself as the center in every circumstance, to attribute to oneself all qualities and virtues, or at least certain ones to a great degree. For the proud man, all this amounts to deifying oneself, making of oneself a little god, and thus taking the place of the one true God who is the true absolute, the summit and center, the beginning and end, alpha and omega, the meaning and value of everything, the source and foundation of every good, quality or virtue, the principle of all perfection. Since he makes an absolute of himself, the proud man does not admit any rival, allows no comparison which might be to his disadvantage, and fears everything that can contradict the respect he accords himself. For this reason also, and so as to really confirm in his own eyes and those of others the superiority he attributes himself, the proud man criticizes, despises and denigrates his neighbor pitilessly and systematically. He is shown to be bitter and aggressive towards anything that can challenge this superiority in his eyes, desiring to protect the presumptuous self-image he has and wants to project. If he despises and denigrates his neighbor, again this is because he denies God by putting himself in his place, thereby denying the image of God in his fellow men which makes each one of them into a potential son of God and confers upon him, through participation, the dignity and superiority of God himself. Since he ceases to venerate his neighbor as being in God's image, and so ceases to venerate God in him, he is led to take no notice of him as though he were nothing, according to the words of St. Dorotheus. The proud man appears smug, full of arrogance, since on the one hand he believes in his own strength instead of placing his trust in divine grace and recognizing that he can do nothing without it. And on the other hand, he claims absolute autonomy for himself, refusing to see his beginning and end in God, substituting and opposing his own will against that of God and turning it into an absolute. One understands that he claims to command and refuses to obey or submit himself to anyone at all. Again, since he does not recognize the archetype of his nature in Christ, but rather takes himself for the norm and reverent, referent in everything, the proud man measures everything against himself, claims to judge everything and know everything, thinks himself wise, wants to be right, has pretensions of teaching and does not tolerate being gainsaid. Generally speaking, since the proud man is empty of God, he is full of himself. In the eyes of the Holy Fathers, pride counts as a terrible illness, very great and very cruel, and a mortal illness. St. Gregory the Great writes that pride corrupts the soul like a contagious and systematic illness that corrupts the entire body. 
St. John Chrysostom likewise says that pride is to the soul what inflammation is to the body. Additionally, the fathers consider this passion very often to be a form of madness, evoking the ancestral sin and its catastrophic consequences. St. Dorotheus of Gaza writes, How have we fallen into this misery? Is it not because of our pride? Because of our madness? Man is mad, says God in beholding this insolence. St. John Chrysostom asserts frankly, Pride is nothing other than an overflow, overthrow of the mind, a very great and very cruel illness that comes solely from madness. For there's nothing more insane than a proud man. The same saint notes further, he who is taken by this passion is no less stricken than the mad. Whence does the pathological character of pride ensue? One can see in this passion as well the result of a perversion of a basic tendency of human nature. As we have shown, man was created to exalt himself toward God and finally to be united to him in the fullness of love and knowledge. Man was destined to accomplish this elevation of himself toward God in God by actualizing the likeness to God on the basis of the virtues that had been placed as seeds in his nature and by progressively appropriating the grace given by the Holy Spirit. Through the synergy of his own efforts and divine grace, in other words, in collaboration or cooperation with God, was man destined to be exalted. This self-exaltation should have been accomplished in union with his fellow man and was supposed to integrate the entire cosmos in a way so as to unite it in him to God. But man perverted this natural tendency by exalting himself, deifying himself and wishing to become like a God according to the serpent's promise, by himself and without God, by his own strength and without grace. Establishing himself and exalting himself without God, he established and exalted himself against God. On the other hand, instead of establishing and exalting himself toward God in communion with his fellow man, man did this against his neighbor, thus dividing the one human nature. On the basis of pride, one can further note another perversion related to the one we have just evoked. Man's normal attitude, making or observing some good in him, is to refer this to God, to see in it a gift, and to give thanks to the giver, to the beginning and end of this good, as of every good. Christ himself gives us an example of this normal attitude in speaking to a man who calls him good teacher. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Mark ten seventeen. The proud man perverts this attitude. He relates the good to himself, makes himself the beginning and end, and thanks himself for it. Thus St. Maximus says, We use the good so that evil might come. Pride's pathological character is also due to other characteristics. The fathers remark that underlying all the forms of this passion is a kind of ignorance. St. John Chrysostom claims, Quote, it is not knowledge but ignorance that leads to the giddiness of pride. This ignorance is, of course, primarily ignorance of God. We read in 
Wisdom of Sirach, quote, The beginning of man's pride is to depart from the Lord, Sirach 10.12, a teaching cited several times by St. John Chrysostom. See his homilies on Second Thessalonians and his commentary on the Gospel of St. John. In the proud man, this ignorance first gives birth to a deluded perception of reality. The first injury suffered by the person subject to pride is to be blinded and to lose the resistitude of his discernment, the rectitude of his discernment, observes St. Gregory the Great. And St. John Chrysostom says in the same vein that, quote, he who is seized by this passion loses, so to speak, the lucidity of perceptions. First, this passion gives man a deluded knowledge of himself. The proud man exalts himself, asserts his superiority, believes he is something or something in and of himself, and that he has such and such a quality, where, whereas outside God, man is but earth and possesses only extremely fragile and temporary goods, destined to disappear and which are fundamentally unreal. Sirach, amazed, asks himself, how can he who is dust and ashes be proud? For even in life, his bowels decay. And St. John Chrysostom says, in like manner, he who exalts himself for things that are in no way real, who puffs up his heart for a shadow, for the flower of grass, is he not the most ridiculous of all men? He is equal to a poor man, who suffering from constant hunger would glory in having had a pleasant dream once in the night. End of quote. This delusion of the proud man is in his self-knowledge obviously appears when he attributes to himself qualities he does not in fact possess, and when a blatant discrepancy between what he thinks of himself and reality is revealed in the sight of all. St. John Climacus notes this gap in a definition he gives of this passion from the latter step 23. Pride is the extreme poverty of the soul that thinks itself to be rich and takes darkness for light. But even if man exalts himself on account of qualities he really possesses, he is deluded in attributing them to himself, whereas they come from God, and man possesses them only by participation in God's perfections. St. Paul asks, quote, What have you that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. When man does something good, he is only some kind of intermediary, and he cannot use this fact as a basis for his exaltation. This is true not only for the good acts he may accomplish, but also for every good disposition, quality, or virtue he can have. For as we have shown, these have been conferred upon him by his Creator, and only by divine grace can they be developed. In attributing them to himself, the proud man makes his delusion worse since, in fact, he implicitly takes himself for God. St. Barsanufius writes, quote, You add to your own condemnation by daring to attribute to yourself what you ought rather to thank God for. And St. John Climacus emphasizes the madness of such an attitude, quote, It is shameful to be proud of the adornments that are not your own, but utter madness to fancy one deserves God's gifts. For man... True knowledge of self consists in knowing that one is nothing by oneself. 
independent of God. It is in this sense that St. John Chrysostom says, no one knows himself more perfectly than he who thinks he is nothing at all. And the proud man who, in all ways we have just presented, thinks something of himself and has exalted thoughts about himself, demonstrates his utter self-ignorance, which leads St. John Chrysostom to say that the proud man is unknown to himself. We have seen that in this regard one could go so far as to say truly that the proud man is deluded, or in any case deceives himself, as St. Paul himself says, quote, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, Galatians 6.3. Unaware of what he is and perceiving his own reality in deluded fashion, the proud man cannot have anything but a distorted view and knowledge of other beings. First of all, the proud man is unaware of his neighbor. In the previous section on vainglory, we had the opportunity to say that if such a person belittles and scorns his neighbor, this is because he is unaware of his grandeur and dignity of being a creature in the image of God and does not recognize him as his brother in Christ. For this reason, his relationship with him is disturbed in many ways. In particular, instead of exalting his brother in Christ, he exalts himself through him, reducing his brother to a mere means of his own glorification or a mirror reflecting his own image to him rather than God's, or at least the image which he himself fashions for himself and expects others to reflect back to him. On the other hand, Instead of seeing the other as a neighbor in God, respecting him in God as a fellow man and brother, the proud man seeks to distinguish himself from his neighbor and to assert his own individuality and superiority by relation to others in the mode of opposition. It is true that each man is unique and is a person distinct from others. The persona hypostasis that was given by God, that is to say, he has his own way of realizing human nature and manifesting the divine image and is called to develop his own charismata. Thus, there exist differences among men, some of whom show forth more qualities and gifts than others. However, these differences find their fundamental unity in God. In the context of healthy relationships, each person's uniqueness is affirmed in relation to that of the others not in the form of opposition, but of complementarity, having in mind the common good in the unity of the human community whose archetype is the church, the body of Christ. Each member has his function, usefulness, and importance and cannot claim to do without the others. Not one deserves contempt and is of less value or dignity. Indeed, those who have fewer qualities or gifts are greatest in honor. Instead of using his own charismata in helping the members of the body who are not as well equipped as he, and thus entering with them into a unitive and complementary relationship lived in God, in a feeling of humility and brotherhood, the proud man diverts these gifts from their normal end goal. He does so in order to use them egotistically to assert his individuality as opposed to his neighbor, and to place himself at the top of a hierarchy of which he reduces the others to being devalued, inferior degrees. 
instead of abolishing differences and even inequalities in God in the unity of the body, on the contrary, they are emphasized and the neighbor becomes a rival. Here, pride is shown to be a sunderer and divider, profoundly disturbing interpersonal relationships and consequently being a source of innumerable evils. Man falls back on himself and encloses himself in the restricted universe of his exalted ego, since through pride he is made unable to turn toward God and truly to open up to his neighbor. In all his reactions, he remains a prisoner of himself. Pride then seems to constitute a negation of charity and thus institutes the destruction of all harmonious relations that charity permits with God as well as with oneself and one's neighbor in him. The proud man perverts the capacity for love that God gave man so that he might unite himself to him by turning this capacity away from its normal end goal so as to redirect it toward himself. The proud man loves himself and nothing else. Here we see that pride is assimilated to self-love. As we have said, all the Holy Fathers consider pride to be an extremely serious passion. This seriousness is made manifest especially in the passion's pathological effects that turn out to be particularly fearsome. Evagrius writes, The demon of pride is the cause of the most damaging fall for the soul. Even though it constitutes in itself a kind of madness, pride can lead its victim to acute and classic states of madness in the common sense of the word. Evagrius in particular stresses this aspect, seeing in madness an outcome of this passion. Quote, there comes in its train the greatest of maladies, derangement of mind, associated with wild ravings and hallucinations of whole multitudes of demons in the sky. From his Practicos. And he notes elsewhere, quote, Straightway after thoughts of vainglory arises the demon of pride who sends forth incessant flashes of lightning and winged dragons into the air of the cell and who brings about the last of evils, loss of one's wits. In a chapter from the long recension of the treaties from which this last citation is taken, that of on various evil thoughts and from the practicos, of Evagrius. He says that pride leads to a state of derangement in which the monk beholds in the air of his cell, which is set ablaze, brilliant flashes of lightning. The night, the length of the walls, and his entire habitation are full of Ethiopians, which in the ancestral vocabulary of that time symbolically denotes demons. Describing what follows this situation, he writes further, quote, he then falls into derangement, exalts himself, and under the influence of fear, forgets the human state. A sayings of the Holy Fathers from the desert relates the case of some monks who, after long ascesis, thus fell into this as a consequence of their pride, this madness. Another saying likewise cites the case of a monk who, under the influence of the swelling of pride, was taken by a Pythian spirit. The Lossaic history also presents two similar cases, those of the monks Valens and Hero, who having first fallen into pride, began to be in delusion under this passion's influence. 
On the other hand, it is known that the passion of pride constitutes a particularly favorable terrain for the actions the devil undertakes in order to lead astray spiritual men by means of false apparitions, which have the appearance of true visions. In the chapter dealing with pride in the ladder of divine ascent, St. John Climacus evokes such a situation from step 23 again, quote, when the demon of pride gets a foothold in his servants, he appears to them either in sleep or in a waking vision, as though in the form of a holy angel or some martyr, and gives them a revelation of mysteries or a free bestowal of spiritual gifts, so that these unfortunates may be deceived and completely lose their wits. Pride has a number of other pathological effects. The fathers say it is the original source of all the evils that happened to man. One of the elders teaches, quote, all wicked things happen to us because of our pride. St. John Cashin, on his part, instructs, pride is the source and origin of evil. And, quote, the deluge of evils that inundates the whole earth has no other source than pride, asserts St. John Chrysostom, who elsewhere says that man's life is accompanied by so many pains and miseries on account of this passion. Making man a stranger to God, pride de deprives him of divine protection and goods, causes him to lose spiritual knowledge, and then all the virtues he possessed. St. Gregory the Great writes, Pride is never contented with destroying a single virtue. It attacks all the parts of the soul and corrupts it like a contagious and widespread illness that corrupts the entire body. St. John Cashin likewise writes, quote, like a universal plague which is not satisfied with crippling one limb or organ but corrupts the whole body, pride destroys not only the virtue contrary to it, humility, as do the other passions, but rather destroys all virtues at once. As for St. John Chrysostom, he remarks similarly, this vice is sufficient to ruin everything good in a soul. And St. John Climacus notes that darkness is foreign to light, and a proud person is foreign to every virtue. It is obvious that in doing so, pride opens the door to all the passions. The whole of tradition constantly presents the teaching that pride is the beginning, the root and source and father of all sin. St. John Chrysostom asserts, pride is the stronghold of our evils and the root and foundation of all wickedness. St. Gregory the Great writes, the seven principal vices are the progeny that have issued forth directly from this corrupted root. And St. John Cashin notes, This plague may well be the last vice to be attacked and is treated last, but it is the first in order of origin and occurrence. If it can be said that pride is the cause of all the passions, one must nonetheless note that some are closer to it and more particularly engendered by pride, notably anger, hatred, in every form of aggression, hard-heartedness, judgment of one's neighbor, slander and calumny, hypocrisy, sadness, envy, jealousy, greed, lust, as we have already stressed, vainglory. For the soul, this passion is a permanent source of suffering. Several reasons can explain this. The proud man can suffer from the discrepancy between what he believes he is or wants to be and what he really feels himself to be. He can also suffer from seeing the presumptuous self-image he has and wants to project, 
or the superiority he claims in relation to others, threatened or refuted. Likewise, he always seems dissatisfied with the exaltation he seeks, for he can never attain the peak, and his pretension knows no end. Pride thus destroys inner peace, plunges man into a state of permanent turmoil. This is all the more since man, when faced with his fellows, almost always achieves an effect contrary to the one that was expected. Instead of respect, most often he is accorded disdain and sarcasm. St. John Chrysostom notes, The complete contrary of what he desires happens to the man possessed by this passion. He thinks highly of himself. He wants to be honored by all. On the contrary, he is despised by all. All men are his enemies. There is no one who supports him. Beyond this, the fear that such a man has at seeing the presumptuous self-image he has contested and hurt can make him distrustful, touchy, and oversensitive, causing the feeling to be born and developed in him that he's being persecuted and disturbing in this additional way his relationship with his neighbor. This irritability drives him all the more to appear aggressive and return as regard those who criticize him or whom he suspects of so doing. Pride is not only a frequent source of interpersonal conflicts, but also the cause that maintains them and prevents disturbed relationships from being brought back into harmony. When it does not hinder the person, it dominates from recognizing the faults in themselves. Pride holds him back from publicly acknowledging them and asking forgiveness of the person whom he has wronged. Moreover, this attitude manifests itself with regard to God as well as to one's neighbor. As the fathers stress, pride leads man not to see his sins, but to forget them, and so to keep them, thus perpetuating the state of separation from God. In contrast, the proud man does not forget the offenses that other others have done to him, nourishing in his heart a rancor that spreads forth painful and unhealthy turmoil into his soul. In conclusion, let us recall that the devil plays a key role in the birth and development of the illness of pride. This passion offers particularly fertile ground to all the forms of the evil one's activity. As St. John Climacus says, it is the support of demons. In pride, man is seen possessed by the devil more than in the other passions, to such an extent that the evil one can call off his assaults, so completely does he dominate his soul. St. John Climacus writes that the proud man has no need of a devil. He has become a devil, an enemy to himself. And St. John Chrysostom goes so far as to say that pride turns man into a demon. Previously, we noted that it was through pride that Satan and several angels become the devil and the demons, respectively. End of chapter 11. Final chapter of Volume 1, Chapter 12, Transmission of Spiritual Illnesses in Fallen Humanity. The passions, along with corruption and death, constitute the consequences of the ancestral sin that are transmitted from generation to generation in fallen humanity, rendering this humanity ill. Through his personal sin, Adam oriented his nature away from the direction given to him by the Creator at his making. He conferred upon his nature 
an unnatural and irrational mode of existence that is manifested in the passions, a contranatural orientation of the use of man's faculties which leads to corruptibility and death. Since Adam was the root of human nature, the prototype of the humanity that he contained within himself as a seed in its entirety, he transmitted the fallen state of his nature to all his descendants. This transmission is essentially carried out through biological inheritance. St. Gregory of Nyssa says ex explicitly in his homilies on the Beatitudes, quote, It is as though those who through transgression acquired sin and introduced illness had woven evil into our substance. Nature wishes that each species of animal perpetuate itself by transmitting its heredity to its young. Likewise, men are born from men and take in birth the deficiencies of men. St. Gregory Palamas explains in the same vein that man no longer living according to God cannot engender beings resembling God, but resembling himself, old and subject to corruption. Each man, therefore, inherits in his birth the consequences of Adam's sin inscribed into his very nature. The Holy Fathers, however, emphasize that men do not inherit the sin of Adam himself, this sin being his personal trespass. In this sense does the Apostle say that one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, Romans 5. Many died through one man's trespass, and death reigned even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam. And when the Apostle says, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, this latter expression signifies the consequences of Adam's sin and not his sin proper. St. Cyril of Alexandria writes from this angle, quote, Nature fell ill with sin by the disobedience of a single man, that is, Adam. Thus many were made sinners, not that they had partaken of Adam's sin, it no longer existed, but since they partook of his nature, which had fallen under the law of sin. St. Mark the ascetic also asserts this clearly. We have not inherited transgression, since Adam himself did not commit it by necessity, but voluntarily. Rather, we have inherited death by necessity, since death dominated him by necessity, and also reigned over those who had not sinned following Adam's example. So, we have only inherited Adam's death. In other words, the transgression of the sin in action is always personal. It is the result of the individual free will, and nature does not inherit it. For this reason, the Holy Fathers recognize that even before Christ's coming, men had the possibility of not sinning, as the numerous righteous ones of the Old Testament bear witness. Adam's descendants partake of his transgression and thereby his guiltiness only to the degree in which they themselves have personally sinned and voluntarily become his imitators. The word of St. Paul must be understood with this in mind. Quote, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Thus, the main line of thinking among the Eastern Fathers holds that the infants are born heirs of the consequences of the ancestral sin that affect nature, 
but not of the ancestral sin itself, which is linked solely to the person of Adam. Although the remission of sins is one of the functions of adult baptism, it is not the function of infant baptism, as Theodoret of Cyprus stresses. <clears throat> Quote, if the only meaning of baptism were to remit sins, why would we baptize newborns who have not yet tasted sin? It must be added, however, that if men do not inherit Adam's sin at birth and can be considered to be free of all personal sin, nonetheless they inherit a state of sin that affects their nature. Thus St. Mark the ascetic, while asserting that men have not inherited Adam's personal sin, says that as a consequence of this, all are born under sin. In other words, in a state of sin. St. Cyril of Alexandria says the same thing when he declares that humanity has fallen ill with sin and has partaken of Adam's nature, which has fallen under the law of sin, while denying that humanity partook of Adam's transgression. In this sense, one can understand the words of the psalmist, quote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sins did my mother conceive me. This state of sin signifies nature's weakness, its illness, its infirmity, its possibility, its corruptibility, its physical mortality, and generally speaking, its spiritual death. In other words, its state of separation from God, and more precisely, its state of estrangement from God. Thus, St. Mark the ascetic writes, With the first man being dead, that is to say, separated from God, we ourselves were unable to live in God. And yet, we cannot blame this state of sin which affects our nature, since man did not personally assume it. Man is born with a nature that is ill, passable, corruptible, and mortal, by reason of Adam's sin, but not of his own. The state of estrangement from God in which man finds himself at birth indeed constitutes a state of sin, but one he did not personally choose. And so is an involuntary sin, having nothing in common with a state of estrangement from God that would result from a voluntary rejection of God and thus be a sin in the proper sense. St. Maximus makes this distinction on the level of Adam himself in his questions to Thalassius. Quote, Through its corruption, Adam's natural will brought about the corruption of nature, which was deprived of the grace of impassibility and became sin. The first sin, very blameworthy, was the initial slip of his initial predispositions to the good. The second, a consequence of the first, was the non-blameworthy transmutation of nature from his state of incorruptibility to that of corruptibility. The day that he transgressed the divine commandment, our ancestor Adam really committed two sins, the one blameworthy, the other non-blameworthy as a consequence of the first. The first came about because the will rejected good of its free accord, the other because nature saw itself deprived of immortality without wishing this as a consequence of the will's behavior. The newborn is not capable of intentional and voluntary sin, and thus cannot be guilty of it. Man is capable of such a sin, of thus committing a sin like the transgression of Adam, of partaking of his guiltiness and thus becoming co-responsible for the consequence of the ancestral sin, from the moment when he is of age to make use of his conscience and free will. Meanwhile, it is 
undeniable that man's inherited nature possesses a certain tendency toward evil, an inclination toward sin. St. Gregory of Nyssa writes, The impulse that leads to evil is an illness of our nature. He notes further that as a result of Adam's transgression, we have undergone in our nature a transformation that has turned us toward evil. This inclination is especially made manifest in the passions that man's nature inherits and which are revealed starting from his birth. It is written in the book of Genesis, quote, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Genesis 8.21, St. John Cassian notes that small infants manifest impassioned movements at a very early age. From his institutes, quote, Consider that the normal arousal of the flesh can be observed not only in children who are still innocent and unable to distinguish good from evil, but even in babies at the breast. They have not even the slightest interest in lust, which shows that the physical arousal occurs from a natural cause. And we can see the same sort of indications of violent anger in children as they display a reaction to things they dislike before they can learn the virtue of patience they can detect a verbal rebuke, even if it is play. They may well not have the ability, but they certainly have the will to avenge themselves when they are provoked to anger." End of quote. The fathers often underscore the violent pressure exercised by this tendency to evil, especially its tyrannical character, reinforced by the demonic activity supporting it and which constitutes a true slavery. This is the law of sin of which St. Paul speaks, Romans seven fourteen and following. Thus, St. Dorotheus of Gaza writes, quote, Man was carried away by the enemy by means of demonic constraint, and even those who wished to avoid sin were almost obliged to commit it. St. Maximus also insists in particular on the powerful dominion that the power of evil exert over fallen man and on man's almost total enslavement. Man is certainly not constrained to sin. He continues on the one hand to have his free will at his disposal and on the other to benefit from God's aid if he is disposed to accepting it. But man's perverted nature, that is to say, his nature turned away from God and turned toward the sensible, sensual and passable, causes him to be easily seduced into sinning and developing his passions in the direction of evil. He accedes all the more easily to the demonic temptations since his will is weakened and infirm. So it is that men most often allow themselves to slip down the slope whither their fallen nature has led them. Once man has allowed himself to be drawn into sinning, his passions develop and drive him all the more to sin, which in turn reinforces the passions. The passibility inherited by nature, changes from the involuntary sin it was into a sin in action by reason of man's voluntary abandonment to it. Likewise, the corruptibility and mortality, which in the beginning were the involuntary inheritance of Adam's sin, become for men a source of personal sins in the degree to which such men, dreading death and corruption, seek to preserve their life by voluntarily abandoning themselves to sensual pleasure and the passions, which in turn confirm and reinforce their corruption and mortality. By sinning personally, man becomes the imitator of Adam, sharing with him and with all men 
who in like manner give themselves over to sin, the responsibility for the fall of common nature. With this in mind, one can say that men are guilty with Adam and bear his sin within themselves. This explains the pessimistic vision developed by St. Maximus, who especially emphasizes the dialectic of sin and passibility and the slavery to which man finally becomes a prisoner. He writes, Sin, the direct consequence of disobedience, introduces into human nature the passibility, henceforth marking the law of procreation. This first disobedience increases with passibility, and human nature voluntarily binds itself to evil with bonds so impossible to untie that there is no longer any hope for man to free himself from them. <clears throat> from questions to Thalassius. To conclude, Volume 1. We have often shown this dialectic in the description we have made of the passions. After the ancestral sin, God, through the mouth of the prophets, continued to give his commandments to men, a fact which would not have made any sense if men had not the possibility of accomplishing them, and which shows that they were capable of not allowing themselves to be drawn into sin. Moreover, we have mentioned that certain men led a just life pleasing to God under this law and in the limits of fallen nature. St. Sophronius clearly indicates the power that men living under the old covenant had for resisting the passions and their responsibility with regard to them. Quote, On the subject of the passions, all have instructed us. The law, in chastising and fixing for each passion the appropriate punishment. The prophets, in commanding that one abstain from them and take to oneself what is better. The righteous, in exhorting us to abandon them. The masters, in showing us how to flee from them. And St. John Chrysostom also very plainly says in evoking Adam's sons in his homilies on Genesis, quote, God, who in good, who is good in essence, neglects nothing so as to lead us to what is good. And as he knows the innermost feelings and the most secret thoughts that move at the bottom of our hearts, he exhorts us, he counsels us, he forestalls our wicked designs. He does not use compulsion, but rather uses appropriate remedies for the woes of each. And then he abandons everything to the decision of our free will. End of quote. It remains no less true that before the word of God became incarnate and had accomplished his redemptive economy, men, even the most righteous, were unable to escape the state of sin into which the ancestral sin had cast their nature. They continued to suffer from the tyranny of their passable nature and its tendency toward evil, as well as the tyranny of corruption and death. This state of sin constituted a barrier preventing humanity from making the fullness of grace its own. Only Christ could heal human nature of the grave illness that had affected it since the sin of Adam. Only he, the God-man, Theanthropos, could give back to the impassibility, incorruptibility, and immortality it possessed in its original state and place human nature once again on the path to deification for which it had been created. End of volume one.